And if you are listening to this on the day the episode drops, then there's either one more sleep or no more sleeps until Christmas. It is time for our annual deep dive into a non-horror holiday favorite. This year, we are taking a look back at what might be the greatest adaptation of Charles Dickens' classic with 1992's A Muppet Christmas Carol. And as always, I'm not alone. This week, I am visited by two Christmas spirits. We need a third. I guess I'm the third. Stepping back in the co-host chair, the Bunsen to my Beaker, the Statler to my Waldorf, the Rizzo to my Gonzo the Great. I think you get the point. Mr. Stephen Foxworthy, how are we this morning? Mike, uh, hi-ho. I am thrilled to be talking Muppets. I am thrilled to be talking this movie. Uh, I am thrilled to be uh, snuggled in my warm place and that we are uh, just, you know, spreading the news about peace and keeping love alive. When did we decide on this one? I feel like I think you already had It's a Wonderful Life in the Hopper for last year. But I think last year we were talking on the uh, Patreon um, streaming service roundtable discussion. I mm-hmm. brought up my my love for Muppets when I recommended Muppet Haunted Mansion. And you're like, we need to talk Muppets sometime. And okay. I think that was the germ from which this all expanded. So it's been a year that we've been waiting to talk about this movie. Pretty and now much, we finally yeah. get to. So uh, there will be absolutely no letdown whatsoever. Like no anticipation, <laughs> no letdown whatsoever. Awesome. But also joining us, we have a first time guest to the show. Uh, Rachel is a photographer and artist hailing from Indianapolis. She specializes in shibari rope bondage and nude portraits with an emphasis on body positivity. Let's welcome Rachel to the show. How are we this morning? I am amazing. I have been waiting literally my entire life to talk about Muppet Christmas Carol. So I am grateful for a platform where y'all have to listen to me. Excellent. Yeah, we... Just kind of threw it out there, like, does anybody want to talk a Muppet's Christmas Carol with us? Because I like Always. hearing from random people, just like the people that aren't. I like having guests on the show. It makes it fun. And you're like, I can talk about this movie for hours. I'm like, all right, we're going to try you on that. We're going to literally put that to the test. Challenge so, accepted. I Challenge can probably accepted. act it all out for you right now on this video Do screen. It. I go. love okay. this movie. Let's go. This is act one. To be jo- oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> there was a point like this morning, like it was pretty early when I messaged you. And I'm like, hey, just have like headphones and a mic. And you're like, oh, I don't have a mic. And I thought for a second... Because every computer has a mic, and it was still early, and I'm like, "Does she think we're doing interpretive dance? It's a podcast. Like, how is she going to?" 
join us for the show. And I, I got. I needed what you it, needed, like a professional thing. I was like, I can no, run to Walmart. Like, I don't no, want to do it. We would not ask 23rd, anyone to but... do that. We would not ask anyone to do that. No. Um, but uh, no, we. I, after the coffee kicked in, I figured out what you meant. So I think we're okay. I am the least tech savvy person probably in the world. So. Oh, uh, we've had some guests yeah. that would challenge you on that. And we've had some others that would definitely challenge Phew. that, uh, but that's okay. So before we dive into the movie proper and the background of the movie, let's kind of go with our initial thoughts and kind of got a two for here. And I guess before we talk about the Muppets proper, what was everyone's introduction to uh, Charles Dickens, a Christmas Carol and Rachel as our guest uh, would you mind talking about like when you might have first read or heard of Dickens' A Christmas Carol? Honestly, the first time was this movie. I saw oh, it. Wow, okay. I saw it in theaters. I was six. I was super, super excited for that. I think I honestly don't remember it, but my sister and dad tell me we were there, and I loved it every second mm-hmm. of it. But um, so that was my first. This was what I thought. Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol was. I was like, oh, obviously it's Muppets. Mm-hmm. So, obviously. yeah, I'm like obviously. this is the story. I don't know why they don't have Rizzo in the original. Um, so, when yeah. you would watch other versions where you're like, wait a minute, where's Fozzie Wig? This True. is horseshit. Yes, exactly. I'm like, I don't like this. Bring back, bring back the bear. Mm-hmm. Uh, truly, I, I mean, that's everybody's complaint, honestly. And all the other versions were like, we just if you just put a bear in it, it would be good. So, yeah, that was my first. Mm-hmm. Never read the book. I don't really care for Dickens. Okay. And Stephen, how about yourself? Uh, well, I guess my first exposure to the story was probably Mickey's Christmas Carol, mm-hmm. uh, which I used to watch as a kid on uh, just, I mean, anytime the Christmas specials made their rounds on TV, my, it was appointment viewing. Like my family would kind of stop what we were doing and watch those. Um, so, and if we couldn't watch them, we'd record them off TV. So eventually we had them all on VHS tapes. Um, but that was probably my first exposure to the story, but I read the book in fifth grade, uh, in school. And then afterwards we watched this movie on VHS. So this, that was my first exposure to this movie. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've pretty much loved it ever since. So, yeah. Excellent. So for us, like my dad used to read us this story every Christmas season, and I guess that's a tradition. I guess like that was not an uncommon thing where uh, he would break it in chunks, like chapter by chapter, and he would time it so that he would wrap up like we would be the house that threw the Christmas Eve family party every year. And then we would go out to either Nana's or Grandma's for Christmas Day. But we had like his side of the family and my mom's side would get together at our place every Christmas Eve, he would time it to wrap up like right before all the guests would arrive. And like the week before Christmas, he would just like sit us by the fire and he would read to us. This honestly carried on till I think I was in high school because I had a younger sister as well. So it's kind of a nice kind of family tradition. I love that. And That's awesome. Dad, yeah, dad would always cry when he would get to the ghost of Christmas yet to come in Tiny Tim's death. Mm. Uh, Like that would always make him tear up. Uh, You know, my dad passed when I was 19 and I like to joke that like, I'll never get forget his like final words to me or like, it should be you son. Uh, But like, those were not his final words, which (laughs) that would be amazing. (laughs) 
the story for sure. <laughs> that would be awesome. But no, it's just like a really great memory. And I just remember growing up, like we would go see this, not just like watch, like the George C. Scott version was yep. the one we would watch on television, which is awesome. Like it's yes. probably like my second favorite Agreed. version so good. of this. Like that one is like George C. Scott, who I don't think is acting. Cause I think he's just that curmudgeonly. Mm-hmm. I think that's just him. Like no acting. I think, the George C. Scott version, he's like, do I really have to like be nice at the end? Why can't it just be I wake up and I'm like, oh, that was a shitty dream. And Fuck you. I'm keeping for... my money. Yeah. You're I slightly just less clothes. cranky maybe. Yeah. yeah. I just go for clothes and some houses at the end. It's like, no, <laughs> right. George, that's not the point. But we would go to like North the North Shore. Like theater would do this mm-hmm. state as a stage play every year. and We would go and catch that. Like our school would go on school field trips. Oh. Um I think as like recently as 2019, my wife and I went to catch this as a the uh, production for like live theater. Like I just love this story, so uh, it's you know it's been in our family forever. Yeah. So, and how about the Muppets themselves? Like I feel like they don't have the same sort of cultural cachet they did when we were growing up, when they were kind of ubiquitous and everywhere. But Mm -hmm. what was all like your early experiences with the Muppets and what do they mean to you as kids? Because I feel like in the 80s and 90s, like everyone knew and loved the Muppets. And now people look at you funny when you mention them to a certain degree. Well, I actually I come from a like strangely media averse family, like Okay. My parents don't still don't really consume media. So as a kid, like we didn't have a lot in our lives. So like my Muppet until the internet and I got a little bit older, like my Muppet exposure was very low. I saw this movie. So I was like, this is the Muppets and I'm obsessed. Mm -hmm. A little bit of Sesame Street, a little bit of Muppet Babies. But I didn't know a ton about the Muppets until I got older and started being obsessed with Jim Henson as an artist and a puppeteer and all the crazy wacky shit he does. Um, so I didn't have a lot about it, but this was it. And I was obviously obsessed. <laughs> so could I ask you then, cause you're a photographer and you yep. do like a lot of live shoots mm-hmm. and like a lot of your shoots are fairly complicated cause you're doing like a lot of like rope photography. Yep. Uh, and there's like a lot of moving parts to that. Um, how would you, cause you, I just heard you mention like Henson there. How would you say like his, like puppetry or his like work like influenced or yeah, I guess influence like kind of like sticks to what you do or like influences what you do now. I think just seeing an artist who is so completely committed to their vision. It's not, it's completely Mm -hmm. different from what mine is, but someone who's like, Hey, listen, I'm going to create these wild puppets. Or even he did this experimental video about time in his early career. That was really like Mm -hmm. stop motion and wild. So I'm like those kind of things where it's like, it isn't what everyone was doing. It isn't necessarily the most desirable at times where he's like, I have this thing in my mind and I'm going to make it. And the way I do that is with puppets. I feel like that's how I see my art. I want to show something Mm -hmm. and I use photo or rope or people to do so. So it's just kind of inspired me in that way to just like say, fuck it and be like, I want to do this thing. I want to make a giant six foot bird. And you're like, yeah, do it. Excellent. Okay. (laughs) And Steven, how about yourself? Oh, I'm, I am an avid, avid Henson fan from, birth pretty much like i i watched sesame street growing up my mom says that i used to do try to do all the voices uh for all the characters i had little imitations for every character based on their catchphrases 
uh, as like, as soon as I learned to talk, I was quoting Sesame Street. Um, Muppet Babies went on to that. I think Muppet Babies was my first exposure to Star Wars, weirdly, and Indiana Jones. Like, I think I learned what those were from Muppet Babies. Um, and then, of course, reruns of The Muppet Show. Uh, and then being able to, like, rent and watch the movies when they came on TV. So I I literally grew up with the Muppets. Like, when we went to Disney World when I was a kid, I, I had to go to MGM so I could see Muppet Vision 3D. Like, I, and I think I said on that Patreon episode that we did, I think overall Muppets are my favorite franchise, mm-hmm. bar none. Like, yeah. I love the Muppets. They are, they are my comfort watch. I am just hurt by the fact that Disney has not seen the value of the property that they have at their disposal with the Muppets because they could be making all the money um, if they just knew how to utilize them properly. But it just kind of feels like they don't know what they're doing. And they, they don't, don't know what to do to, with them. They don't, they don't. And they don't want to listen to the people that do, um, which is why Steve Whitmire uh, is no longer with the, mm-hmm. with the Henson Corporation, unfortunately. Um, and I, I mean, I've got Muppet thoughts. I've got, I, I'm, I'm coming to this table locked and loaded with Muppet thoughts today, Mike. Well, give so. us your big Muppet thought. Like if you were going to relaunch the Muppets today in 2024, you're going to make that the year of the Muppets. Like what would be the first thing you would do? Well, I think the two most recent decent things that happened with the Muppets were uh, the 2011 film and Muppet Haunted, Haunted Mansion. And I think those mm-hmm. two Haunted things Man. demonstrate what the Muppets do best, which is the let's put on a show mentality that was such that was so pivotal to the original Muppet show and what made it work. It's this scrappy group of artists who don't who really don't go together at all, but they are a team. They're a troupe. And anyone who's ever been a part of an acting troupe or a, an artistic group knows like those ins and outs and knows those artistic struggles and knows why a role like Kermit is so both so thankless and so important. Um, but then also the idea that I think Henson started when he started making the Muppet movies is that these aren't so much the Muppets doing these things, but these are the Muppets themselves as performers performing mm-hmm. this piece. And I think that's what this movie does really well. And I think that's what Muppet Haunted Mansion does really well. And I think there are lots of different things that Disney could be doing with the Muppets, utilizing both of those ideas. Muppets now, I think, is the closest we came. But that still seemed kind of, it felt kind of flat because there was very little interaction. It was all like, we're all in COVID talking to our Zoom screens, kind of like we are now. Um, but it, it lacked the kind of dynamism that you would get from the backstage antics at the Muppet Theater, right? So, um, I mean, d- basically distilling it down to first principles, figuring out why it works, what works about it. I think so many times they're trying to filter the Muppets through different lenses, like um, like filtering them up through the office lens on that old ABC show, The Muppets, that just mm-hmm. didn't really work. Um that's not what the Muppets is. That's not what it was designed right. to be. They're in a, the, the, there's no inner politics between the Muppets. They just are who they are. Right. They're kind of beings of pure id, um, putting on a show for our amusement and enjoyment. And that's, yeah. and then the, the special guests are there more to facilitate the wackiness than they are to, um, you know, be to, you know, promote things or what have you. So I don't know that that's, that's my thought for what it's worth. I, just, I, I enjoyed the, 2011 movie but i think that the issue i have with it is it like siegel's script 
kind of reeked of desperation a little bit. Like he was kind of like desperate to make the Muppets relevant. Like every other sentence was like, you're important where I thought like Muppets most wanted was more just the Muppets having a caper. And that was kind of like really fun about it. It's just like the Muppets are going to get into shenanigans. And I think that is agreed. I love Muppets most wanted. It gives me great Muppet caper vibes that just unhinged group comedy. And I think that's the thing that kind of knocks it for me is that it feels like it's trying too hard mm. to be Muppet, great Muppet caper for me. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. I need to revisit it. I've not seen it in a few years. So I need to go back and give it another shake, which honestly, well, at some point I'm going to sit down and rewatch all the Muppet films. So. Let's yeah. let's pause the show for a little bit. Go okay. ahead and do that. Come right, back. Let me, and let me then cue it up here. We'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel's face right now. They're really going to do that. I'm like, no, um, let's do it. <laughs> I know, uh, Stephen, I kind of have a similar experience to you. Like, I grew up on, like, The Muppet Show. Like, every Sunday night on ABC, uh, like, watching that show. Like, I have, like, distinct memories of, like, especially the Star Wars one with, like, mm-hmm. Mark Hamill. Uh, and, like, Pigs in Space. And, like, oh, yeah. Muppet Doctor Theater. And, like, uh, the Boomerang Fish. And just, like, the Swedish Chef. And yes. Hurdy Gurdy Gurdy. Uh, like, super early memory. And, of course, like, Sesame Street. Like, growing up. Like, I had a Grover stuff animal until sixth grade and i think my parents quietly (laughs) removed it because they're like i would take it with me like on sleepovers and my parents are finally like okay enough is enough right probably should not have this anymore this is why you're bullied um (laughs) so i like you know pre amazon days like pre-internet days when you could order anything you want and get it in a day. I used to like scour because um, my favorite Muppet is Fozzie Bear. I would scour like flea markets for like a, a Fozzie Bear stuffed animal. And like a then girlfriend one day surprised me with I still own it um, like a Fozzie Bear stuffed animal. Like I've had it since 94, 95 at this Damn. point, like oh, that's 30 awesome. years. Um, it is a full adult now. It's yeah, it's a full on, you know, could have bears of its own. Uh, It was like just a cool gift. When I published a punk zine way back in the day, every band I interviewed, like the last question would be if you could take any Muppet on a date and we're like, and the Muppets are gender neutral. Like you can doesn't, you know, we're like, we were just, we were even in the nineties. We were like, which would never even thought of that shit back then. We're like, you know, if you want to date Kermit, whatever, like there's no gender to the Muppets. You can take whoever you want to, if you want to date any Muppet, who would it be? And where would you go? And I remember like Ian Mackay of Fugazi trying to claim he had never heard of the Muppets and me arguing. So never meet your heroes. Yeah. I remember yeah. getting in an argument with him, like about how have you never heard of the Muppets and him just being like, I've never heard of the Muppets. I'm like, I don't believe you. Like, just answer the question. Like, why won't you answer this question? This like, I question. Prom- yeah. And he's like, I don't know what the Muppets are. I'm like, Kermit the Frog. He's like, I don't know what that is. I'm like, I don't believe you've never heard of Kermit the Frog in like 1995. Like, you're wow. a liar. So, so what is the Muppet you would go on a date with and where? Oh, Good it'd question. be Fozzie Bear. It'd be Fozzie. Okay. Good call. Totally Fozzie Bear. Good call. Uh, we wouldn't go to a comedy club because yeah. I think that would be embarrassing for yeah. him to see really good. Just, you know, it'd be shameful. But bowling, I could see him being a good bowler. Yeah. You know, there's nice shoes. So definitely be Fozzie Bear. Yeah. So sure. waka waka. So I just, yeah, I adore the Muppets. Um, I got to watch the Muppet movie again over break. It's one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. And 
Yeah. All right. Let's talk a little bit about this movie's background and how it came together. I'm going to try to fly through some of this here. Um, first, like super quick background on just Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol before we talk about this movie specifically. The novella was first published in December of 1843, and it was during a time when Dickens was experiencing financial hardships of his own. Uh, it revived his fortunes a bit, but when he wrote it, he meant it to be a direct critique of capitalism. Uh, Dickens himself was born into a middle-class family. His father was a bit of a layabout uh, and was thrown in debtor's prison when Charles was 12. So the future author had to leave school and begin work in a rat-infested factory, which kind of helped in order to help support his mother and his siblings. So that... Mm would go on to influence a lot of his writing uh, later on. And Rachel, you mentioned you're not a huge fan of Dickens. His Just his work or the man or... It's his work. I think okay. if you took almost every book he wrote, which maybe I should read Christmas Carol because it's short, but like mm -hmm. Great Expectations, I would say 20% of that book is amazing. And then like 80% is him spending 20 pages describing a like wall or a flowing yep. river. And I'm just like, get, get to the fucking point. Like, yeah. let, let, let's get there. It's like George R. R. Martin describing food yes. in the Game of Thrones. He's building atmosphere. He's painting a picture. Yeah. He's, well, like, he's trying to get it, the entire it. scheme yeah. in your mind. Yeah. Yeah. Creating it. Yeah. A Christmas Carol's short. I mean, it's a novella. You can get through it in a couple hours. Maybe time, I'll read so it over yeah. this break. There you go. In 1843, early in the year, I think February, Dickens toured the Cornish tin mines. Uh, which is where my wife's father used to work, not in 1843, um, but, um, but where he was like disgusted to find children working in, I can't believe I but um, bumped and then said, also child <laughs> labor, dangerous, also child labor. Um, but we'll leave that in. So he tours the tin mines and he's disgusted to find children working in dangerous and disgusting conditions. By October of that year, sickened by what he had seen during the tour, as well as reading the parliamentary report that had been published in February, uh, titled The Second Report of the Children's Employment Commission on the Effects of the Industrial Revolution on the Working Class uh, Children, Dickens was out giving public lectures, imploring the working class to unite together to lobby for educational and labor reform. So he's basically calling for unions in the 1840s. And he's giving these lectures and he decides, like, this isn't really working. Like, just going out and giving these stump speeches isn't enough. He's a writer and he writes fiction. He's like, I can change hearts and minds by my art. And he feels like he can have a much more of a influence on, on the populace by writing a widely distributed Christmas parable rather than delivering lectures. And he had written about Christmas before. He had already published like four short, like secular stories in the past, like throughout the 1830s. Uh, so the novella is published like in December of 1843. So he turns it around pretty quickly and it's an instant hit. So much so that like his other publishers are plagiarizing it, uh, that they're withholding his... 
uh, commissions on it. Uh, and he has to actually sue them in order to get like paid his proper wage and like what he's owed for it, uh, which is pretty amazing. By 1849, it's never been out of print since its first publication. By 1849, like Dickens is doing public readings of the story, which he would continue to do until the year of his death uh, in 1870. And it remains one of the most adapted stories for stage, for film, television, and radio of all time. Like there's about 119 adaptations of it between all different mediums. Damn. I think 53 of them on film. Like it's, yeah, it's one of those things that like there's always something in the works going on for it. So maybe we mentioned the George C. Scott one. There is uh, the Patrick Stewart version. There's obviously Scrooged with Bill Murray. Um, there's just like tons of these that have like been made and adapted. I just happen to think that this is one of the best and like one of the most faithful versions of it. So, and it did have like a pretty far reaching influence, like not only in terms of like persons talking about like the anti-capitalism critique and helping out like the working poor, but also just in terms of the phrase Merry Christmas, although it had been used prior to the publication of it, it became like a lot more widespread um, the idea of like gathering, like families gathering in homes, like because of the depiction and here, like that became more and more popular as well. Because this is published at a time where you have not just like your traditional Christmas caroling, but for the first time, like putting Christmas trees at home and sending out Christmas cards like that is just becoming a thing in Victorian England. And it's depicted here in the novella. And because this is such a widespread and widely distributed story, like those traditions are picked up in England and elsewhere as well. So its influence is not just in terms of like it, the thematic work, but also like the cultural impact of it as well carries over. So Charles Dickens. What a guy. Go. Who knew? What a man. Who knew? So the Muppets themselves, no strangers to Christmas specials prior to this movie. 1977 gives us one of the most melancholy holiday programs of all time with Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. And I've got to ask both of you, you have both seen this, I imagine, yes. correct? And what are your thoughts quickly on it's so good. I, I have tragically not yet seen um, Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. It's it's on my list. Maybe this is the year. I, maybe that's what I do mm -hmm. after we're done recording. Yes. After I'm done watching Muppets Most Wanted, I put on Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. Mm -hmm. Rachel, your thoughts? It's so good. It's so sad. And it's just it like, is. it's just a completely different vibe of any of their other Christmas mm -hmm. ones. So like, I don't watch it every year, but sometimes you got to get your Christmas cries. So you got to watch it. Yeah. It. I mean, it ends on a downer note. It's one of those things where, I mean, it there it's, yeah. And there are no Muppets in it. It's like exactly. the, the Muppet creations, puppet creations, mm -hmm. but definitely not Muppets. Mm. Um, the music is wonderful and it's really beautiful and really well done. But yeah, you'll definitely get your Christmas cries. And I yeah. have only watched it a couple times because it's so heartbreaking same i feel like i listen yeah. to a song or two sometimes you know like you go on mm -hmm. and you're like okay i'll listen to this one but it's no muppet family christmas that's for sure no, no. <laughs> and there is uh, the 1979 like coming off the success of the muppet movie 
couple years later in 1979, the Muppets are paired with John Denver and they do a television spe special, A Christmas Together. They also release a Christmas album for that special, which is really good. And then you're right, in 1987, just a few years before this movie, uh, there is a Muppet Family Christmas, which I have never seen. So what? It's is, on YouTube, Mike. It is on YouTube. Go watch what it. What is a Muppet Family Christmas? Oh, Mike. Is that when they go visit Fozzie Bear's mom? Yes. Is that the yes. one? Okay. Yes. yes. They all, the entire Muppet clan piles into Fozzie's pickup truck, and they all drive to, to surprise his mother, who's gotten tickets to... Malibu, uh, I think. Malibu, yeah, to California. <laughs> I watched this like just the other day. After I finished my watch of this movie, I put on Muppet Family Christmas because I'm like, okay. I need, I need that nostalgia. Hey. Hit. Um, and they, uh, she's rented her place out to Doc and Sprocket from Fraggle Rock. Uh, but once the gang shows up, she's just like, well, okay, sure, everybody in. Uh, and then the Sesame Street gang shows up to do some caroling, um, and then. Uh, Kermit's nephew Robin goes down in the basement and finds a Fraggle hole. And so he and Kermit go in and they meet Fraggles. Um, and they talk about the different Christmas traditions that Fraggles have. Um, and then at the, like the entire last maybe five minutes, five to six minutes of the, the special is just every character from all these shows singing Christmas carols together. And it is, it's great. It's amazing. And then Jim Henson himself shows up at the end to wash dishes with Sprocket. This sounds wonderful. It's it's, it's it's a it's a delight, it, and it is just like pure nostalgia hooked up to my veins. I used to watch this as a kid. I have never done mushrooms, and I kind of want to, and I kind of <laughs> want to do it and watch this this special. Yes, while doing mushrooms, hundred percent. Yes, that'd be a okay. good that that would be a good time. You probably have a good that, trip. <laughs> that sounds like an absolutely amazing time, but I think it's on YouTube is what yeah. you're saying. It is the entire, okay. it is in YouTube and it's on YouTube in its entirety. Okay. So I think I will like cue that up. And I, I you know, I've watched this three times already this season, yes. partly to prepare for this show. And I mentioned to my daughter, like we're recording on this. She's like, well, that movie's amazing. I haven't watched it this season yet i'm like all right well i guess we'll queue it up for the fourth time yes. tonight after yep. dinner and do a little you know popcorn and hot cocoa and it'll be our uh you know like christmas little christmas movie for the night so oh, yeah I love can that. watch this so many times you know mm. it's, it's so it's 85 minutes so you know yeah. not a huge not a huge commitment i not think Muppet right. family christmas is like 45 maybe oh, yeah perfect. so i'm like okay. you can throw it on before get a little double feature going mm -hmm. Absolutely. Perfect. That would make a part. Speaking sure. of someone who just did the double feature, yeah. it's a great double feature. Perfect. We'll do that. So in 1990, uh, Jim Henson passes away. His son, Brian, takes over as like the creative director and CEO of the Muppets. And Brian does not want to draw any direct comparisons to himself or his dad. So he, the idea of like adapting a literary property as opposed to doing another original film in the style of like Muppets Take Manhattan or Great Muppet Caper, like it's much more appealing to him uh, because they can just adapt something. So he's much more on board. There's some precedent there too, uh, because mm -hmm. there had been, uh, I think like maybe like a Henson storybook classic or something where they had adapted uh, different stories with Muppet characters, some mm -hmm. with actual Muppet characters and some, just with Henson creations. So there, yeah. there's definitely some precedent there. 
um, leading into it. But in addition to Henson dying, uh, Richard Hunt, one of the original uh, Muppet performers, he passes away earlier in 92. Uh, he's the man behind Scooter, Janice, Beaker, Sweetums, many, many other. He was one of the original voices of Miss Piggy um, before Frank Oz fully took that role over. Uh, he passes away in 92 due to complications from AIDS. Uh, and this film mm-hmm. is dedicated both to Jim and to Richard Hunt. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they're both incredible. And their absence is, is definitely felt in this movie, yeah. I think. There are a number of Muppets missing, and we'll talk about that when we mm-hmm. kind of talk about the movie. Mm-hmm. You're right, because there, there's the Storyteller, which I think ran on NBC. With John Hurt? Um, yeah, and it's like adapting like fairy tales and literary tales like they would do a different one and that's where like brian henson got like some of his beginning and we'll talk about that here in a moment it's in a little bit darker material as well it's not necessarily like you wouldn't expect to see kermit like pop up on something like that and that was something that henson was really passionate about the the further he got into his career i was reading something Mm -hmm. on steve whitmire's blog earlier um and he's writing about you know henson would never go back and watch the old stuff he was always wanted to kind of push forward mm-hmm. and i i think particularly when you see stuff like the dark crystal and labyrinth he was really passionate about getting like making puppet forward things for adults and i mm-hmm. think the storyteller was just a step in that journey for him yeah in a lot of ways like the things like the muppets and sesame street like that pays the bills you know what i mean like the, yeah. the licensing from like the muppets alone allows like Jim Henson to do Labyrinth and Dark Crystal, which maybe aren't as commercially as successful, but are like a lot more groundbreak well, they're groundbreaking and pioneering and maybe more to his like aesthetic at that mm-hmm. point. Right. So um originally this is gonna be a made for TV movie. It's actually not going to be a theatrical release. Like it's going to be on ABC and be like the Sunday night movie of the week. Something Mm -hmm. family would gather around back when that would be a huge deal. Like back when not everybody has cable and you're going to get like 30 million, probably in all honesty, more people probably would have watched this on television than wound up seeing it in movie theaters during its original theatrical run. Uh, But after Jerry Jewell, turns in his script like Disney loves the script and decides like why don't we release this and distribute the film theatrically they feel like they have the potential for a massive holiday hit on their hands right I mean Jerry Jewell is just one of the one of the names that you hear alongside Henson as just like one of the pioneers of Mm -hmm. the early Muppet stuff and most of the great stuff that they put out in those early days has jerry jewel's name on it like his Mm -hmm. he's his is the script that they use for the original muppet movie um he's the writer on like Muppet treasure island he's the head writer on the muppet show like he is after henson i would say he's probably the guy that kind of best hones the aesthetic and the sense of humor of the muppets i think henson and jewel kind of share that responsibility so anything jerry jewel's going to turn out it's going to be amazing I would say the third guy is Paul Williams, who we'll talk about in a little bit. Like, that would be, like, the three people. uh, Well, Frank Oz, obviously, too. Yeah. But so the four people, I would say, would be most responsible. But, like, Paul Williams and his music, especially Mm. with the Muppet movie, is, like, a huge part of it. Um, Michael Caine is, like, really the first and only 
person they decide they want to get to play Ebenezer Scrooge for this movie. And he makes a very specific choice in how he's going to play it. He says, I'm going to play Scrooge like I'm acting with the Royal Shakespeare Company. I'm never going to wink to camera. I'm going to adjust my performance. I am not going to adjust my performance at all because it's puppets. I'm going to pretend that this is a very, very sincere, dramatic telling of a Christmas carol because I think that'll be the funniest choice. And that's really weird that he's like, this will be actually humorous because I'm not winking at the camera. It's the it's the old comedic he's the straight man mm-hmm. like the the idea that that humor is found in the honesty of a situation so if you want to play the comedy sometimes you have to play it straight yeah. um let the muppets be as wacky as they're going to be and then he's just the guy going uh this is happening i suppose yeah rachel D- we'll talk a lot more about kane and his performance when we talk about the movie specifically but do you find kane's performance like funny overall no, I think he plays it just so straight that it, not that it's not funny because he, there is humor in sad and dark situations, you know, but he plays it so seriously that it like amplifies the craziness around him. Mm-hmm. And I think that really just like makes this movie what it is because I am a believer that it is a scary movie. It's a scary movie for yeah. kids. And if he was goofing off and laughing you would be like, huh, look at these funny ghosts, but he's terrified and he is horrified by how he's acted and his emotion. And you need that to make yeah. it impactful. So I think he did. Yeah. He played it the way he had to. I don't think it would have been nearly as good if he was cracking jokes mm-hmm. and winking. Like, yeah. When I, when I think of like the straight men in comedy setting up the jokes, I think of like Bud Abbott of mm-hmm. Abbott and Costello, mm-hmm. like Larry Fine from the three stooges, perhaps like the greatest straight man of all time. Uh, Dean Martin of like Martin and Lewis like they are straight men that play it for laughs but this is there are funny bits but like Kane gives like a especially over the summer we covered like Jaws the Revenge (laughs) and it's a much different performance from Michael Kane who is definitely not playing it like he's acting with the Royal Shakespeare Company (laughs) well look I think all respect to Jaws but I think the Muppets Put a little more respect on their name, please, and thank yeah. you. <laughs> better better puppeteering. Truly. Muppet For Christmas sure. Carol or Jaws 4? What has mm. better puppeteering? No question. Yeah. No question. No. What if the ghost of Christmas Future was played by, like, Jaws' fourth shark? <laughs> be amazing. That would be pretty great. <laughs> Just pretty ominous. Pretty yeah. ominous. Pretty great. So the original idea of this movie, the way this was originally going to be played was it was going to be much more of a spoof. Uh, Henson says like the Muppets at that point, they're much more famous for questioning the status quo and for anti-established irreverence. So we took that and pointed it at Charles Dickens. Robin the Frog was going to be the ghost of Christmas past. Miss Piggy was going to be this Bacchanalian ghost of Christmas present, which is amazing. Um, That sounds incredible. Yeah, I'd watch that movie too. I'd, I think I would too. An animal was going to be the ghost of Christmas yet to come. Although Henson has also said Gonzo was going to be the ghost of Christmas yet to come as well. I've so heard that. Little... And he was going to play it silent except for the nose mm-hmm. would just be poking mm-hmm. out. Of <laughs> Jesus. We were going to do a romping comedy. 
Uh, and then they decide not to go that route because, like, Brian Henson decides, like, let's play it straight. Like, let's actually give this material, like, the reverence it deserves. And Henson's only 26 when he's given this, and his father's just passed away. He's given this multi, this hundreds of million dollar empire to run. And he doesn't want to direct this movie. He's tapped to direct. And he's happy to do it when it's a made-for-television product. But as soon as Disney picks it up, he's like, this is way too big a task. Like, he has not directed anything at this point. Uh, he is, like, headed puppeteering. He's working on that. He's created he, – he's done a lot of creative work, but he has not directed anything. Right. And he could not convince anybody else to take over for him. Um, so he's like, all right, well, I guess I'm stuck. And he credits the calming influence and support of Frank Oz as keeping him in the directing chair. Like Frank Oz is like, look, I'm going to be with you the whole time. You've got this. You know what you're doing. He's like, your dad will be watching over your shoulder from afar, mm -hmm. but I'm going to be right here with you as well. Like we're never going to let you get in over your head. Don't worry about it. Like we've, we've got this. You're totally capable. Um, Michael Caine went on to say, he's like, I did not know this was his first time directing. Like he did a bang up job and he's like two weeks in. He's like, what do you mean this is his first time? Like <laughs> you almost wonder if Kane would have been like, oh, I would have taken way more advantage of this right. guy if I knew it was his. Um, I mean, in terms of mentors, you can't really ask for better than Frank Oz. I mean, that man yeah. is a great director in his own right. Yeah. So like. Absolutely. Yeah. Hard, hard to go wrong with with that. With, with when you when you've got the guy who directed Little Shop yeah. of Horrors whispering in your ear the whole yeah. time, mm -hmm. how how do you go wrong? Yeah, and it just so, shows what a like family of misfits both the Muppets are and the people who made them are. I feel like stories yeah. like that really it's why the Muppets connect with people because it's not just Disney pouring money into these weird puppets. It's people who have built their own clan of wild Muppets and are yeah. making shit that's cool. And I think that is why we love it so much because that feeling is there. Yeah. It's, and I think that's what made the Muppets hit as well. And maybe that's part of the reason why they've not hit as well since, yeah. I mean, so many of those performers have started to um, sadly pass away. And so they don't have that kind of band of misfits feeling anymore. It's become much more of a corporate organization and a corporate a entity. Yeah. yeah. And so you don't feel that kind of love and camaraderie that those early years had because they were all in it together and they all mm -hmm. shared that, that love uh, yeah. of it together. So, yeah. I, I think there's something to be said about like a Frank Oz, a Steve Whitmore, a, a, a Jim Henson creating and developing these characters and coming up with backstory and living with these characters through the seventies, the eighties and part of the nineties. So that like, it feels like a real part of you mm -hmm. and it feels like a real kind of extension of yourself that you feel very protective of it. And it seems like ridiculous to say like, oh, well, Kermit the Frog would never do that. Um, it's like, what do you mean? It's like felt, uh, you know, Kermit the Frog will do whatever we tell it to do. There's a difference between having that sort of ownership versus kind of being a mercenary for hire that maybe you grew up in kind of loved these characters. But at the end of the day, it's like another, just like it's a job, it's a CV that you add to your resume mm -hmm. uh there's like definitely a difference that's there and i think frank oz like he actually penned a pretty long like letter saying specifically that like when the disney muppet movies came out like a lot of the actual like passion is not in yeah and that's why he didn't return 
Yeah, that's I'm a big part of what kept him out. I think the one that he wanted to do after Jim's passing uh, is the 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 cheapest Muppet movie ever made. Mm-hmm. You guys heard the pitch for that one? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's basically the Gonzo is allowed to direct the Muppet movie, mm-hmm. and he blows the entire budget on the opening credits. <laughs> and so the movie gets progressively cheaper as the movie goes on till the end. They're literally just, you're just looking at storyboard illustrations with the, with the, the voices talking over them. And like, that was the one that, that Oz really wanted to do. I'm sure the script is out there somewhere, but yeah, I just, I, I want to see that movie get made and Disney. They're, they're too much of cowards to actually put it out. If you find that script, I would so do that for a script reading. Challenge yes. accepted, Mike. Right. Challenge yes. accepted. I've not done one in a couple years. I would so do that. And we would try to do them in character. Um, so I just had a quick note while like Henson's Muppet movies, like they're obviously much lighter fare. Uh, Brian's work did tend towards darker material. Like he is cutting his teeth on Labyrinth in David Bowie's terrifying cod piece. Uh, I think <laughs> terrifying. Reason... What are you talking about? I was going to say terrifying, <laughs> Mike. Hmm. I am like not a huge fan of David Bowie personally. Oh, okay. I understand why people love David Bowie. Like I'm not someone who's like Bowie sucks. I'm like, no, I get why people love him. The reason I'm not a fan of David Bowie is like literally Labyrinth and that cod piece and the egg. I'm like, <laughs> nope, not for me. The storyteller television series, like this darker, more adult fare. Like that's where Brian is getting his start. Uh, and he's getting, he says in an interview uh, that came out just last year to celebrate the 30th anniversary. He's talking to Entertainment, Entertainment Weekly and talking about, quote, being too terrified to direct the movie he's getting notes back from disney and abc and uh i think jeffrey katzberg and the notes literally say like this could be a lot funnier like you know he's saying the typical setup of the muppet scripts like every page has at least two jokes or two gags on it but this material we're playing it straight like it's definitely funny but we're not necessarily going for gags so when they're filming this and seeing the material like they're getting notes back it's like where are the jokes so yeah musically this is a comeback movie for paul williams uh he had written music for the Muppet movie, but had fallen on hard times in the intervening years. After penning a string of hits in the 70s for acts as huge as the Carpenters, like Rainy Days and Mondays, and We've Only Just Begun, he had played uh, the Phantom for De Palma in Phantom mm-hmm. of the Paradise, yeah. which I've never seen. Same. So I think... I think I, again, confuse that with, like, the Kiss Phantom. Mm. Like, I always mix that movie up, and I'm mm. like, I don't want to watch a movie with Kiss. And it's a <laughs> Diploma movie. That's fair. So, uh, Williams connected with, like, Henson and the Muppets after that. But in the 80s, he had found himself uh, with a crippling addiction to cocaine and alcohol. It wasn't until the end of the decade before he felt ready to check himself into rehab, Uh, When he emerged sober and ready to tackle songwriting again, it was only two months later when his friend uh, Jim Henson died. Mm. Um, He said getting to compose the songs for a Muppet Christmas Carol, Williams found himself drawn to the story of Scrooge and he found it like a redemption story. And he found the hook in a man learning to live life a new way, learning to live with a new appreciation for it after a spiritual awakening. 
uh, there's an anecdote he told about the recording sessions in London during June of 92. Williams went to introduce himself to Michael Caine saying, hey, it's great to meet you, a longtime fan. And Kane looked at him and he's like, dude, we met years ago. Like we actually spent a whole weekend together, like for days at the white elephant gambling among other things. And Williams is like, yeah, I don't remember anything about that. So, uh, yeah, we'll talk a lot more about the music when we talk about the movie. Did he do, um, Emmett too, didn't he? Yes. That's what I thought. Mm -hmm. Written, written by Jerry Jewell as well. So, so he's a longtime staple and he talked about like why he connected with and we'll, I guess we'll talk about it. When we talk about the movie like he appeared on The Muppet Show. Yes. And after a song he performs with Rolf the dog, he like Rolf says, oh, that's pretty sad, isn't it? And he touches Rolf's hand and he says, I didn't feel like I was touching a puppet. He felt like I was touching an actual character like that's how he was connecting with him and i think that is like what the muppets bring to the table like you don't feel like you're connecting with like a person that's playing a character you feel like you're connecting with these actual beings yes so i guess we'll talk about that in a few minutes here a little more in depth but um this movie's not a hit upon its initial release, which is kind of shocking because it's so beloved, comes out during a super crowded holiday landscape. Mm-hmm. And there's also a lot of other family-friendly movies that come out during this time. Uh, it has to go against the juggernaut that is like Home Alone 2, right. which is a horror movie. Yes. Uh, and we could should cover it as such. Uh, Home <laughs> Are you, Alone what are you saying? Is... We're going to cover the Home Alone franchise next year? I think... Mm-hmm. Next Christmas, we're either doing Home Alone or A Christmas Story okay. as mm-hmm. our Christmas Day movie. One of those two. Right on. Love that. I'm kind of leaning A Christmas Story okay. because that movie's such a banger. And I love Bob Clark. Your Black Christmas episodes, by the way, I've listened to the first two on Disenfranchise were mm. absolute bangers. Oh, thank you so much. The, way, the third one, honestly, the third one's my favorite. Okay. Like, Nicole just... Brings it. Well, in Nicole's that wonderful. She is. Ariel was wonderful, by the way. I thought you meant the third Black Christmas was your favorite of the Black Christmases. No. And I was like, <laughs> nope. <laughs> I gotta no. go, guys. It's the Bob Clark <laughs> one for sure. I no. disagree with your co-hosts on their assessment of Bob Clark's movie. There, I I also disagree with them on that assessment. So, but it goes against Home Alone too, which is like taking all the money. Also, Aladdin is still in theaters mm-hmm. at that point, so like Disney is kind of cannibalizing itself a little bit there. So Muppet Christmas Carol opens in sixth place on December 11th. It takes in only like five million. Home Alone 2 in its fourth weekend pulls in about 8.3 million to kind of give you an idea of how right. that movie was doing Thanks. to pull in over 100 million. A Few Good Men opened at number one. Um, Look, so, they couldn't handle the truth. I'm saying. So the Muppets could not handle the box office is what, is what we're saying here. Very good. I'm looking at the box um, office right now. That is an insane, an insane top yeah. 10 that weekend. 
we used to be a country that could produce things. A, ver- a variety <laughs> of things and not just the same cookie cutter thing over and over again. Yeah, we used to be a nation that was so I convinced my daughter we're going to see I think Christmas Day we're going to see the Iron Claw. Oh, right on. She's 13. Yeah, because the Alamo Draft House, everything is sold out. We're going to go see Wonka. Um, I've been told to pour things would be completely inappropriate for a 13-year-old. Um, so maybe we'll hold off. I don't know. She's pretty mature. But an Iron Claw, we're going to go see. Right on. Because, um, you know, what is Christmas without a lot of tragedy? Yeah. So <laughs> Correct. <laughs> I've got a Kerry Von Eric story super quick. So Kerry Von Eric was doing a book signing when I was in fourth grade. And I went, I bought my book. I waited in line. There were thousands of kids. But I had to leave to go to church because it was an altar boy. Mm. So I wasn't going to get my book signed. So we left the mall. It was a Walden Books at the mall. And as we're walking to my car, his limo pulls up an hour late, probably because he was doing drugs because that was Kerry Von Eric. I mean, that's a fair assumption. Right. And I run up to him like, Mr. Von Eric, Mr. Von Eric, I was waiting in line to get you to sign my book and I bought it. And can you please sign it? I got to go to church. And he looked at me. He's like, no. And he walked away. And I'm like, you fucker. And I'm like, eight, nine. I'm like, fuck that. So I ran after him and followed him into the back of the bookstore. I'm like, please, please, please. Like, no. And the door shuts behind me. It was one of those weird latching doors, so I couldn't open it. And they just pull him to the front of the store. I'm locked in the back of, like, a Walden Books. My dad's pounding on the door. I'm crying. Security had to escort me out through thousands of people. Oh, my God. So, you know, some of the Just when I thought this story couldn't get better, it does. So some of the Von Eric deaths were very tragic. Not Carrie Von Eric in my opinion. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> oh my go see the Iron Claw. All right. Steven, you have a note here about the box office of the Muppets, so take it away. Uh no, I'm, I mean I'm just I'm just looking at it here. Like in terms of hang on, let me let me check overall like franchise. This I mean I don't think this one does particularly well overall for the franchise. Uh, but I think more than anything, in terms of this one becoming a classic, since it didn't do really well in theaters, I think the home video mm-hmm. really, really helps. I mean, that's how I first experienced it was on home video. I think most – because clearly they didn't say it in theaters. This film only grosses this less than $30 million in its entire run. Yeah. Um, so like people didn't go to theaters to see this. So I think mo- the way most people engage with it is on home video and it becomes – the juggernaut cult. I mean, most people will probably argue this is one of the greatest Christmas films of all time now. Oh yeah. People, you know, my age, the, the exennial age. And I mean, it's just become the, the standard. Um, but I didn't know when I, f- until I watched it on Disney plus a couple of years ago, I didn't know that the song, um, uh, the love is gone was not in the movie. I had never seen a version of this, movie without the love is gone it's still not back on disney plus by the way uh because i watched it on disney plus the other day and i didn't see it there same with hulu they cut it out on there too i think mm. it's there it was there last year it's not there now Mm-mm. i watched it tuesday choose like the you might have to go into extras oh. and it might be in there with that version because we watched it last year with okay 
Um, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't know that. And that of course, Katzenberg famously cut that song because he thought kids would get bored. Um, which I mean, as a kid who watched the movie, yes, I did get bored with it, but I think mm-hmm. I, as an adult now, I appreciate it a lot more as part of Scrooge's arc, uh, and kind mm-hmm. of understanding him more as a character. I, and it's such, it's, it's a beautiful song. Um, like it, it really is a, a beautiful song, but I think Katzenberg's like, look, you got this slow downer number, um, kids want to see the Muppets. They're going to get bored out of their minds, take the shit out of there. And so they, they cut that song and I had never seen a version of it without until just a couple of years, until a grown, until I was a grown ass man. It belongs in there. Leave it in. Right. I think it's so important. I'm like, maybe I agree. I'm like, I just think that it's one of the first times you see this like massive humanization of Scrooge, which is a huge part of this. I think yeah. The Muppets aren't in it, but they're watching it with you. And I feel like Gonzo and Rizzo are the perfect guide to your emotional reaction to the movie. If you're not sure how you feel, there they are. They're crying. Mm-hmm. I cried every time in it as a kid. Sometimes I still do because yeah. it, it being sad and lonely, especially at the holidays, it hits whether or not you realize that's why you're crying at it. Like So many people are sad and alone, not with the people they love or have ruined relationships with the people they love at Christmas and to watch it like brutally performed right there for you. And then it transitions. Cause how else are you going to cut from Christmas past to Christmas present? He's sad. He morphs onto his bed. He lays down heartbroken. I think it's a beautiful transition into the like pow of Christmas present. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. I don't think maybe because like I had never, I'd watched this so many times without that song in it. Like I really only heard it in the context of the credits. Mm-hmm. But that is a good point that it does. You do see Kane like sobbing at the end, like after his, he's hearing it. I think that is a good point. The way you put it, like, especially with like people that sabotage their own relationships mm-hmm. and yeah. maybe thinking about it this time of year. Um, one quick note, cause you mentioned home video, Steven, Mm-hmm. The DVD of this, if you put the DVD in and just leave it on the home the menu, mm-hmm. and don't hit play. Kermit just gets more and more exasperated. I love that. Waiting for you to hit play. It's amazing. He's like just gets angry by the end of it, but not <laughs> in a amazing. way that not like angry in a way that I would get angry. Like he gets Kermit the Frog angry. Right. So so it's pretty great. There, there's something similar to that on the UHF DVD as well. Um, oh. Weird, Weird Al will show up and just get more and more pissed the longer you wait and don't hit play. It's really oh, fun. I love that movie so much. It's great. Okay. So let's dive into it right here. Um, we touched on it briefly, so I apologize if I'm asking this a second time. But Kane's decision, because I think we got to start with Michael Kane. Playing Ebenezer Scrooge straight, I feel like it does a great job of balancing this movie out because I think the Muppets add so much humor to it. I think that his performance as Scrooge has so much emotional heft and gravitas to it. And he's such a great performer anyway. Where do you feel like his performance ranks amongst the scrooge performances and how do you feel he does here and i don't think anyone's gonna say he sucks because we're talking about (laughs) this movie an hour in so right yeah spoiler he's the worst (laughs) boo no i i love i love his performance i love what he's doing i think 
particularly because Henson, Brian is wanting to kind of shift away from the stuff that his dad did. It makes sense that this is the movie he wants to make. And Michael Caine is making the best decision for that movie, for sure. I know of a lot of Muppet fans who do not enjoy this movie as much as some other films in the Muppet franchise because of Kane's performance, because it's not, it's, it's too grounded. It's not they don't, they don't consider this a Muppet movie. They consider this just a Christmas Carol adaptation that happens to have Muppets in it. Um, And I, I understand where they're coming from. I don't agree to be clear. I do not agree with them. Um, but I, I just feel like I should at least voice the frustrations of a subset of the Muppet fandom um, who don't necessarily kind of see the the appeal of this compared to some of the other films in the franchise. Um, compared specifically maybe to Tim Curry in Muppet Treasure Island, who is chewing all of the scenery in that movie, um, just absolutely making a meal out of it. Um, and it definitely feels like that performance is a pivot away and that movie in general is kind of a pivot away from this one in a way that that that's more of a parody than it is a direct literary adaptation. Mm-hmm. Whereas this is, I think, purely a literary adaptation. It's very clear that Brian is wanting to try something new with these with these characters that hadn't really been done to this degree before, which I think is in and of itself an interesting exercise. And it fits very much the model that Henson and his father, Jim Henson, established in the early Muppet films that in The Great Muppet Caper, they set up, okay, we're not Kermit, Fozzie, Gonzo, the guys you know, we're actors playing characters in this other story Mm -hmm. uh, and setting it up like that. And so that's kind of how this sets up. And you've got you know, Gonzo as Dickens telling the story and then all the Muppets kind of fit in there. And then Michael Caine just fucking delivering, just pile driving as the performance of Scrooge for sure. What are your thoughts, Rachel? I think I can't imagine a movie where he was more comedic, but also I think the fact his like seriousness at times is almost comedic. Like there's this one scene where the kid's outside caroling the rabbit and he opens the door and he looks up for a human. Mm -hmm. And like, that's so funny without having to be funny. He's seriously mad. He's expecting someone else that you don't have to be like cracking jokes and being Mr. Goofy to pull off such a beautiful moment of humor that is done because he's serious. So I think, I don't know. I think also, the beauty of Muppet movies is they can be anything. So I think that that's yeah. what makes this the Muppetiest movie of all, because they're like, no, we're doing Dickens. And that's like the joy of it. So I don't know. I think he is brilliant. And I think if I don't know that I'd like the movie so much if he was funny. No. Like, you need the serious. You need the like. And to he shuffles you through the emotional impact of the story. And then you have the Muppets there to be the one who make it not just a straight shot. And you also talked about how this movie is a horror movie for children. It is. It's a scary-ass movie. I think we get so, like, it's a kid's movie. It is. And, like, that's because people, you know, you look at puppets, you think kids. I'm like, no, I love Muppets. I'm a grown-ass woman, and I will always love a Muppet. Um, but I think it's a spooky ghost story. It The way they do it in some ways with even the Muppets are afraid. The Muppets are showing this like s- deep sense of terror and fear that you don't really see in other kind of Muppet movies. And it to makes it scary. To the that Gonzo and Rizzo just piece out of the movie. Yeah. At the end. Mm-hmm. 
Which as a kid, when I remember being scared of it, I was like, well, like, if you have to go, they left. You know, you're like, my mm -hmm. buds couldn't handle it, but you can. So it right. gives you this like sense of camaraderie to it. Um, and I think it is truly a scary, scary movie. Not compared to now that we've watched so many scarier movies, but like when, and Scrooge is scared. If he wasn't scared, why would we be scared? But the way right. he is fearful of what's going on around him, you're like, oh shit, why is he afraid of, no. you know, these goofy ass ghosts that we know and love from another movie, but he's scared, so I should be. It And it leans, I think it works also because it's leaning into the sincerity like so often, you know, you've got that kind of 90s post irony thing mm -hmm. that kind of pervades pop culture. And I think the reason this works so well is that it doesn't fall into that trap. And it it is this movie is achingly sincere. And I think Kane playing it the way that he does helps push that sincerity and helps promote yeah. that sincerity, which I think is, again, the secret weapon of this movie. Yeah. And I think to that degree, like in order to make Dickens moral lesson work, in order to sell the change that Ebenezer Scrooge goes through hmm. in this. Like at the Scrooge has to go through the ringer and he has to come through the other end of this night, a changed man in order for a Christmas Carol to have any sort of emotional impact in, in order for any lesson to be learned. If, Throughout this movie, like Kane is like cracking jokes in wiseacres and like doing pratfalls. If he's doing that sort of thing throughout the movie, like why? You know, if he's like shaking his fist in a comical way at Bob Cratchit, going like, "Why I'm going to get you, Bob, for turning up the uh, coal?" Like if he's doing that throughout, then he doesn't really learn anything but it doesn't appear that he learns anything mm -hmm. by the end of it it doesn't come off like the lesson really isn't learned and by making him as repugnant as they do at the start of this movie as by making him is kind of scary and i think part of it too is like the way henson films michael Caine in mm -hmm. this and some of the flourishes that he uses with the camera angles and the musical mm -hmm. cues that are used with the score because he's able to do that, because we're able to take Michael Caine seriously, at the end, when he comes out of this a changed person, children and adults like see that lesson. And I think you wouldn't get that otherwise. So I do appreciate Caine's choice. Although I love, like, I love joking around that, like, at the end of this movie, when he's sitting at the table singing, um, not, um, the love, the love we found. found. Yes, when he's singing <laughs> The Love We Found, I just he has this look in his eye where he's just like, I'm freaking out here, man. Like you can tell, like, <laughs> he's like just feels a little weirded out. Like, I love to imagine Kane was like tripping balls the whole time he was filming this movie and didn't realize he was like filming against puppets. He just thought these were like magical real creatures. I love that. So that is headcanon now. like to imagine Truly. that is my headcanon. Um, our thoughts on Gonzo as our omniscient narrator. Perfect. As Mr. Charles yeah, Dickens perfection. himself with Rizzle the Rat. I, I love... The, their pairing is kind of a revelation. And I think uh, based on what I read, I, I, again, stumbled on Steve Whitmire's blog this morning when I was just like dicking around on the internet. And um, he, someone asked him about what he remembers from Muppet Family Christmas. 
And they talk about how much they love the pairing of the turkey that he plays in that with Gonzo and then the pairing of Gonzo and Rizzo in this. And he, I, I put this little blurb in the notes here uh, about him reminiscing about that, um, about his relationship with Dave Gells. Uh, at that stage, after the Fraggle years, Dave and I had developed an amazing chemistry between us. We were like an old married couple who can look at each other and intuit what the other was thinking and often about to say. Our sense of each other's timing was virtually telepathic. Um, and then he goes and tells a goofy story about how they used to get Indian food in Toronto um, <laughs> and, and how Steve didn't know how to pronounce anything. Um, but like, I think th- it works because the two of them are, su- are so connected as performers Mm-hmm. that their relationship feels as organic. And again, that's, I think what works about the Muppets is it, the relationships between the characters are the relationships between the performers. And I think that works so well here and it gives maybe people who aren't as familiar with the story, kids coming into this and for them, like you, Rachel, it being your first exposure to this story, like it gives you kind of the, the intro that you need kind of the in that you need to be able to to follow the story and to to relate to these characters, um, and you and it's it's a very kind of Bud Abbott Lou Costello kind of relationship, and that you've got Gonzo weirdly playing it straight for most of the movie, uh, and then Rizzo kind of being you know the goofball, and then occasionally Gonzo getting like a fun line like "Oh, you have all the fun" after he falls down the chimney and lands on a flaming hot goose, and you know, stuff like you get, you get kind of those echoes of the character that Gonzo is. And it's, it, I can't imagine those lines are actually scripted. I'm pretty sure those have to be something that they came up with, like when they were riffing and there's like, fine, we're, we're writing that in. That's a great, that's amazing. Rachel, what are your thoughts on this pairing of, of Gonzo and Rizzo and, and how they work specifically like as a narrating duo? I mean, I don't know. I just think, with you have like one person telling the story which is like for me like you said it was my first time seeing it i didn't know any of this in fact i thought there were two marley's the whole time until i got older and i was like wait there's only one of them you gotta have both um so having that framework definitely helps but then i just feel like wise cracking rizzo in it in your ear saying all those little like wise ass things you're thinking when you're watching a movie you're just like yeah well this is stupid and oops i left my food and like he is the he felt like it's like the two sides of your you have Charles Dickens and you have your thoughts that you're watching so it's almost like they're live streaming my thoughts of the movie while it's happening mm-hmm. so I'm like you've got both you've got and so it's just perfect it's the yeah. it's the narrative I needed for that movie and I love Gonzo I think he yeah. he's my favorite Muppet so I'm a Gonzo he's up there he's yeah, just up there for me too and they you mentioned like Abbott and Costello like I think the, in the truth the best. The Muppets work their best, I think, when they are kind of like mining those like vaudeville roots, mm-hmm. like that live Absolutely. performance, that back and forth, like the banter. Like that is when the Muppets, I think, are at their best, when they're kind of doing that kind of cornball kind of comedy, so but yet they make it work. And I think that there are so many cute little moments at work here. Mm-hmm. Like there's that little joke when – Rizzo is like, I know this story like the back of my hand. Mm-hmm. And Rizzo's like, prove it. And Gonzo just starts describing the back of his hand. Like, that gets me every single yes. time. Just little physical bits, like after this huge, and Henson described this as one of his favorite moments in the movie. And it doesn't do anything. Like, you could cut it from the movie and nothing would be missed. When they're behind Scrooge's bedchambers, 
and like allowing Scrooge basically to go from his door to his bedroom. And they are trying to get into his yard. And Rizzo is perched at the top of the fence. And he's like, oh, I, you know, I don't want to jump down. I don't want to jump. Please, you know, let go. Save my poor broken body. And he jumps. <laughs> and then he's like, oh, I forgot my bag of food. And he just goes and he walks through the fence and walks back in. <laughs> it's such a great. And he's like, what? Like, doesn't even consider what he just did. And then kisses Gonzo's nose. I love that bit. And you could cut that completely. Yeah. But it works. And it just explains their dynamic so well. And, and I, I think, think it's... Oh, oh, go ahead, Rachel. No, I was going to say, I just think they have a lot of physical comedy between the mm-hmm. two of them, which is funny when you think of them as being on other people's hands. I don't. Mm-hmm. When you watch them, they feel like two people. But when he's like scrubbing the window with him he's like thanks for making yep. me a part or even stoking the fire with him like they don't even yep. mention it it's a second pan over of right. this moment that's just mm-hmm. so physically funny that, that i don't think i don't know it's it's my favorite part about him yeah and i think disney has tried to recapture that since like muppet haunted mansion you get like the mm-hmm. parent and gonzo's kind of become the stalwart because dave gels is the only guy left of the original guard that's still willing to do Muppet things and Gonzo's his character. So Gonzo kind of takes the lead on a lot of these projects now, but um, you've got, you've, they pair him with Pepe the prawn, which <laughs> I don't like Pepe the prawn. I don't like that oh, character yeah. at all. I'm not a fan, but I don't think that dynamic works half as well because Bill Beretta and Dave Gels don't have the same level of chemistry that, that Dave and Steve did. Um, And so it, it feels lacking and it feels like you're trying to make something where there isn't something. And I don't like that. Yeah. Comedy troops and comedy pairings are hard. They are. And it's difficult. That's why even when, when Abbott and Costello split up, when they broke up as a pair and then they tried to get back together for a couple couple comedy specials, like by that point, like the timing was off and, think there were other issues like health issues at play as well like it no longer worked it's like okay our time it's kind of passed mm-hmm. and we'll talk about that in a couple of months when we do Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein the other thing though is like what works for them as narrators is number one like you said Stephen like three quarters of what Gonzo says is straight from the novel like he's just straight up narrating from the book yeah so he's acting as that and, and then rizzo is acting as like the greek chorus and saying like you had said rachel what kids might be thinking when they're watching this and kind of keeping it moving along here but they also are acting as audience surrogates like when the movie is getting scary or serious they're matching the tone of the material on screen they're no longer acting zany Mm -hmm. and there are two parts like one part they actually tell you like hey we're leaving we'll be act we'll be back for the finale like that's when the ghost of christmas uh of yet to come comes in like this is too scary for us we're out of here we're gonna grab a burrito (laughs) the other part of it though is like they're not in scrooge's bed chambers when marley and marley show up and they don't tell you that but they're not there and the tone of that scene especially the first part of it is markedly different from the rest of it it's much more somber it's a little bit spookier to your point rachel it's a ghost story and you feel that change you feel it with the music you feel it with the selection you feel it with the camera angles scrooge has gone from this larger than life character to feeling much smaller and much more vulnerable 
And I think in part of that works because if you had Gonzo and Rizzo there kind of cracking jokes, like that would break that tension. So they know when to not use them too, which I think is great. Mm. So speaking of being used, what are your thoughts in general of like all of these other Muppet roles? Like how are they cast? How are they assigned? What do you think works here? What stands out for both of you? Because I'm, I'm talking a lot today, so I'm going to take a breather for a minute. So <laughs> what stands out for y'all? Go ahead, Rachel. I mean, obviously Kermit is Bob Cratchit. I feel like in, mm-hmm. when I see Bob Cratchit or someone says Bob Cratchit, I think of Kermit. His spirit is that. And so, like, obviously, not obviously has to be him, but I feel like that's the obvious choice. You want that Mm -hmm. tender, kind character to be him. Um, I think, like, Fozzie is one they did super well, obviously. Just even though it's for two scenes, you know, he's one at the factory and then one at the end is old Fozzie. Like, that goofy character is exactly who Scrooge's fun-loving boss would be. I think Miss Piggy is the one that I'm like, yeah, she would have been a great Bacchanalian modern day goddess but like the pissed off wife of this poor meek man whose kids are dying and has nothing to eat and she's just done pretending she's okay with all this shit like it's classic piggy so like again her perfect role i don't think there's anyone that doesn't fit even the little ones like you see the swedish chef for a second rolf plays the piano for a second you have all these little moments where they don't I don't feel like they have to force every character to be this muppet mm-hmm. but they pop up for a second and they're like yeah it's a muppet movie of course here we are Right. I think Piggy is the one that I had the toughest time with growing up because she's a star, you know, Mm -hmm. she needs to be front and center. Why are we, why are we sidelining her? Like I could, in another version of this, I could see her playing Scrooge's love interest, Yeah, but it feels like, well, Kermit's obviously Cratchit. So she's then obviously has to be Mrs. Cratchit. And I don't think the role, it's been a while since I've read the original Dickens novel, but that role, I feel like they they've suited Piggy to that role. They're like, okay, since, since Piggy has to play this character, now we need to make this into a Piggy character. And so you get her being a lot more assertive and I'm going to raise you right off the pavement mm-hmm. and all that stuff that she does, uh, which I think ends up working really well. But I, I remember when I was younger being like, I think Piggy deserves more than this, but I I've come around to it and I like how they use her, even though I think, in, in any other adaptation, that would be a very thankless role. And I think a lot of it is like gender roles of the time. Like you're not yeah. going to have a woman screaming in someone's face. And she tries. She does raise your right off the pavement. But the minute she realizes she's wrong, she's <laughs> like, I, she. Which is still a very piggy thing to do. Truly. <laughs> so she is. And that's why I think it works is because this is a telling of the Christmas story with Muppets. Like, right. obviously, if it was she could be Scrooge in the way that she is in a different Mm -hmm. version of this movie, but just playing her as a smaller bit part. And she still has her bits. You could tell she's in charge of the family, you know, and she's like, it does, doesn't it? And she's so Mm -hmm. proud of her meal. She's bringing piggy to the role of this or like the role that they were going with it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, they, they definitely elevate, she elevates the material. I think that that like her kind of elevating that role from what Dickens had probably originally intended it for it to be. And I think them putting her there gave them and gave them some more opportunities to use her for comedy, which I appreciate. But you always want more piggy. There's never a movie that you don't want more piggy. Like, (laughs) yeah, I, I definitely, yeah. I, and again, she's the star, like that's just, that's, 
core to her character, fundamental mm-hmm. to who she is. So I, I just wanted to see like a lot of, a lot of Piggy for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I agree with you. I don't think there's anyone that's really miscast here. There are characters, of course, I want to see a lot more of. Like, I, I love the Electric Mayhem. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of bummed they're really relegated just to the Fozzywood Christmas party. I'm bummed Fozzie's only relegated to the Fozzywood Christmas party, right? quite frankly. Like, because you're dealing with a story that has a lot of very small characters, you've got to kind of spread your cast and put them where they need to go. But in doing that, unfortunately, you miss a lot of moments with a lot of your favorite Muppets. Like... Mm-hmm. You know, I love Fozzie. I love Dr. Teeth. Mm-hmm. I love the Swedish chef. And I don't see nearly as much of them in this movie as I, as I would. Seconds. Have. You see seconds of them. Right. Which is not enough. Not nearly right. enough time for me. Yeah. Agreed. I mean, there's so much going on in the background in this movie where they do create ancillary characters that, you know, they're just, you could have maybe used them in the background where you would recognize them. I don't know if that would detract from the story where you're like, Oh, there's like the Swedish chef kind of hawking his wares. Like there's the guy with the boomerang fish, like selling his stuff. Um, Maybe that would have taken away point of order. Mike, his name is Lou Zealand. Thank you. I could not remember his name. Um, Maybe that would have taken away from like watching the movie, but I think I would have liked to have seen that. I love Fozzie so much. And Mm -hmm. what I love is that all of the characters, although they're playing parts in a movie, and I do love at one point when like Gonzo literally leans into Sam the Eagle. Eagle. Like I was like, you forgot your lines on stage. And it's like, yeah. we're in Britain. And yeah. Sam is like, it is the British way. That gets me <laughs> every, every time. time. I laugh mm-hmm. every time. It's it's such a silly, small... And then like Sam kind of like looks at him after he yeah, walks like, on stage. Mm-hmm. Like, Sam's like, oh, yeah. is, that, is that okay? Like just kind of looks <laughs> over at him and I'm, I, it kills me every time I laugh. There's also a little line he has that I I never caught it until last night Mm. as like they're zooming out on the ghost and Michael Caine. You hear Sam go, remember, you don't tip. (laughs) Yes. Which is such a Sam the Eagle thing to say. Um, The thing that worries me is Fozzie is green at the end of this movie. I'm Mm -hmm. like, why is Fozzie green? That does not look good. That's not a good look. Oh. Yeah, the only time we see him look like that is when in that picture in Muppet uh, Great Muppet Caper, when Kermit and Fozzie are playing brothers, and they're like, "What does your dad look like?" And it's <laughs> it's Fozzie's body with Kermit's eyes and Kermit's mm-hmm. frill, and the fur is completely green. Yeah, and it, yeah. it's not good. It looks it's it not looks good. very disturbing. <laughs> yeah, it's a thing of not as much of a nightmare. Before we talk about Marley and Marley, I'll point out. Fred's Christmas party. Mm. The oh, yes. Muppets that he are hosting there are the things of like Lovecraftian nightmares. Like, I don't know where he finds these creatures. Mm-hmm. I don't know what they're doing there. They're horrifying. How did I, they get into Upper Crust Muppet Society? I don't really? know. Like, who designed them and who thought these would be good creatures for this movie? Like, they're terrifying. They're absolutely. I love them. I love them them so much. Oh, my God. They remind me of the neighbors in Rocco's Modern Life. I don't know why. Oh, yes. Like, the, yeah, something about the the shape of their mouths and the warts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what they always remind me of as a puppet version. You expect them to open their mouth and for like Tiny Tim's legs to be sticking out of their mouths <laughs> like they've eaten. They just like, what do you live? We serve babies. Just like they're <laughs> horrifying. 
And it's like the real fear. Like, yeah, we're all scared of dying. We're all scared of the horrible things that come. But what we're really afraid of is all of our, not even friends, but the people we know talking shit about us when we're not there. Like, yeah. that's like oh, yeah. the ultimate horror. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. <laughs> like oh. just everyone, you know, sitting there making jokes at your expense and you can't say yeah. anything. There's no reason to bring him there except to like, hey, I'm going to bring you here to get humiliated. Yeah. Hey, listen. He asks for it. He says, show me family. You're like, mm-hmm. all right. Oh, so Careful sad. what you ask for, man. Yeah, yeah. truly. Um, Stephen, you had a, a note here about uh, two puppets we haven't talked about yet. Yeah. So um, the as we've kind of mentioned b- briefly before, Rachel, I think you, you pointed this out. Um, the role of Jacob Marley is split in this so that Statler and Waldorf can play Jacob and Robert Marley. Um, and I remember the first time I watched this being very confused, like, wait, did I misread that book that I just read? Like, was that was there a Robert in there the whole time and I missed it? But like they create a whole – because obviously if you're going to have someone taunting Scrooge at the beginning and letting him know that there's going to be monsters coming to get him um, – Statler and Waldorf are the obvious choice, or Statler or Waldorf, but they are kind of a team effort. Like, what do we think about the choice to to split that role to cast Statler and Waldorf? Could they could they have cast just one of them? Should they have cast another Muppet? What? How do we feel about that? I don't think you can split them personally. I don't think there's any way you can split those two up. I think, like you said, if anyone's going to be mocking him, it's going to be them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can't think of another Muppet that I would want to see in it, like alternate Muppet universe where it is the, you know, someone's playing it funny. I feel like you could have someone else do it, but not in this version. It's got to yeah. be them. Right. Um, the only other thing I could see doing with them is making them the narrators, like making them mm. the char- like giving mm. them the Rizzo and Gonzo role. And I think that would be hysterical. I yeah. could see them knocking that out of the park. That would be But really I think funny. you have to make them... They're such the obvious choice. A, because they're old and they sh- would be dead. Mm-hmm. You know, because they're old. I mean, let's face it. They're just... They're old. Uh, and that's really the only point I have there is they're old. Um, <laughs> this concludes my discussion. Thank this you. This concludes my point. Thank you. But they're the obvious point. And also the way they're able to... It's they're the first one to get under Scrooge's skin and you can see it. You can see him regress and it really works. And it's a banger of a song. Marley and Marley is a great tune. Um, Horrifying. Yeah. You can see both of them being the kind of like money hungry, scrounging, the type of people that would definitely put orphans out on the street on Christmas day and get a good laugh out of it. Like you can see them, being the two Muppets that would do that. And they have one of the best jokes in the movie at Fozziewig's party when they're like, it was pointless. It was short. We loved it. Right. <laughs> poor Fozziewig speech. Like he gets no respect. No. No, no, no. And he's their boss. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's great. I also it's not think... like when they're... Sorry. No, you I was first, just going to say, there's a, fa- a part in Marley and Marley when they're talking about the orphanage that they are laughing and they're joking, but even at the end of that, they both shudder when they're yep. talking about that. Memory, and it gives them that, like, go like they, as people w- or as Muppets, would not, they don't give a fuck about anyone. They're going to do anything. Yeah. But that, like, gives that, we've seen some things now that we're dead and being tortured for the mm-hmm. things we did. There's that little bit yeah. of humanity to it that I think also well, makes it horrifying for Scrooge. I don't think they shudder because they put orphans out. They shudder because they're in chains. They don't care about the orphans yeah. still. Okay. 
And there's a part that like there's a couple of things that are missing in this because you can't put everything in, but they talk in the novella when they when Marley encounters Scrooge, he says, like, look, you've been alive seven more years. Like your chains mm-hmm. are much longer than mine because you've had seven more years right. to be a miserable prick. He doesn't say miserable prick because that's that's not, not Dickens, yeah, that right? Yeah, it would not be. And I wonder if so much of that is because I've never read it, that that makes the difference that of the perception is because I only first knew it as two Marleys. Mm. Oh, yeah, that might be. But it's it's um their interplay is great and they're wonderful. They're really they're really, really wonderful. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't see how you could break. The only thing I could see them doing is just if they were the narrators, that mm-hmm. would be it. There are new Muppets in this, and I do appreciate that they don't use Muppets we recognize as the ghost of mm-hmm. Christmas, the, the Christmas ghost. Uh, I love the designs here, that that ethereal design for the ghost of Christmas past. Mm-hmm. Um, she was actually filmed in a water tank, mm-hmm. and then they would composite her into the shot afterwards in order to give her that look of like the floating robes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess they tried it in oil. It didn't quite look as, as so well. <laughs> just a greasy um, past ghost. <laughs> yeah, just like the ghost of Christmas. Get a shimmer. Just, yeah. Yeah. So what do we, how do we feel that these ghosts represent like what we think of when we think of this story as it's been represented in other mediums? I feel like this is the opportunity to combine kind of the Jim Henson company's roots Mm -hmm. with kind of where they were going right around the time Jim died, because all of these puppets with the exception of the ghost of Christmas present, who is my favorite? um, Because Jerry Nelson is just a fucking delight as the Mm -hmm. ghost of Christmas present. Um, And that's more kind of in the style of like a Sweetums or a Junior Gorg or something. Um, But the other two are very much in line with something you might see on the Storyteller um, or in like a, like a Dark Tower riff or something like you've got um, just the way that that puppet, those puppets are are modeled in designs. And it reminds you that, I, I don't know, I think it grounds it a little more because you're not, you're not in the, I don't know, it, 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 it kind of grounds it a little more because these aren't the, the characters you recognize. You're, mm-hmm. you're, more, you're more immersed in the actual story itself as a result. Um, like I remember the Mickey Christmas Carol, you have, I think Jiminy Christmas is the ghost of Christmas past. And um, the giant from uh, Jack, Mickey and the Beanstalk is, is the ghost of Christmas present. And then Pete is the ghost of Christmas yet to come. And it's, okay, well, we're slotting in these kind of lesser characters. And so rather than doing that, we're creating these brand new characters. I think if it had been a parody, yeah, you'd want to see your Muppet friends in there. But because we're playing this straight and the designs are so cool, like it, yeah. it's very evocative of what you would imagine reading the book that these characters might end up looking like. I feel like it, may, it pairs really well with other versions of the Christmas Carol, specifically like the George C. Scott one. I feel like they beautifully took a classic image from Dickens' story and made it their own. But also I think the fact that it's not the Muppets we know does give it even more that like the world that exists is the Muppet world that George C. Scott, is, or no, sorry, that uh, Michael Caine is in and that Kermit is in. And these ghosts are from a different world. The Muppets mm. can tell, the humans can tell. They are Muppets, but not from our Muppet world, which gives it even more of a clear, otherworldly, eerie vibe because they aren't ones we recognize. I agree. And I, I agree with both of you. That is a much different aesthetic 
from the rest of the Muppets. It is like they do have a more kind of carved out, almost wooden look, especially on the Ghost of Christmas past. It almost looks like a, a China doll, like what you would see, like a carved a porcelain doll. I think would right. be a better way to put that. Sorry. Something very fragile. The Ghost of Christmas present, I think, is maybe the highlight for most people. Just like really And the Muppetiest. Yes. 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 Well we all what we all kind of like want to kind of like attain, like that kind Mm -hmm. of spirit and that's real joy. But we see them age as well. Uh they don't shy away from that here. Mm -mm. Um I noticed like watching this again, the ghost of Christmas yet to come, it's not pure black. It doesn't look like a Dementor or one of the creatures from uh Lord of the Rings, which I think is what it's kind of well, modeled after many times uh, in the movies, but it looks more like his bed sheets. Mm-hmm. It looks more like what he would find, and I think that's a really nice visual touch. Still pretty scary, um, but it's still, it's, it's the arms. Kind of like, yeah, the arms are like unnaturally mm-hmm. long, like almost twice as long as normal human mm-hmm. arms would be. Like mm-hmm. they're almost dragging the ground, but yes. not quite. Mm-hmm. Like when he's when he's walking, his hands are normally folded, but I think there's a couple scenes where they're down at his side, and you mm-hmm. can tell they're hanging very low. Mm-hmm. And so like that's the prominent feature, and that's what makes it, I think, so unnerving. The design mm-hmm. on it is because those arms are so prominent, and those hands are so large, and again, very detailed. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of as you would expect from the Muppets, like a lot of attention to detail there. It's absolutely incredible. And he interacts with Scrooge a lot with it. I feel like of the Muppet, you know, he is touching him with those big hands. Mm -hmm. He's guiding him. There's this connection that when you watch that human and that puppet interact, it's a very different vibe than he's interacting Mm -hmm. with the other puppets. And you can tell that's not, a natural human yeah. like it's it's much larger it's the mm-hmm. proportion differently proportion. it doesn't move like a regular human yeah like so you can tell there's there's something deeply sinister here mm-hmm. for sure mm-hmm. scared the shit out of me when i was a kid yeah oh rightly so tying into that like the overall like aesthetic of this movie and the way like this wor- world of london is represented mm-hmm. i think is so gorgeous like just that opening shot and i think that you know, the, Henson talked about like, yeah, we made some mistakes the way it's designed. There are some things like if you rewatch it, you can pick up on that like don't look right or that like aren't supposed to be there. But like we were a we thought like you wouldn't be able to catch them on like a quick watch. But I think this is like a visually striking movie. And I think when the Muppets like we talk about the Muppet show when the Muppets are at their best, like it's a very chaotic world. Things are constantly in motion. It looks like a very lived in world. And I think that the street, it looks like a very lived in world here that there's always things in motion. People are always moving about. Muppets are always moving about. And I just love the aesthetic and the design and the set pieces here. I think it's just so well represented in, in such a visually striking and beautiful movie. It reminds me kind of of a, of a Disney ride, like a Pirates of the Caribbean kind of thing, mm-hmm, where mm-hmm. like there are so many details that you can't possibly catch them all your first ride through. You have to go on the ride over and over and over again to be able to catch all the little funny mm-hmm. moments and details that are kind of peppered in the background. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it just feels like England at Christmas time. My sister lives uh, in London, or they just moved to Oxford, but she lived in London, and I was there visiting her, and I was like, oh my god, am I in the Muppet Christmas Carol? Just oh, like wow. the cobblestone streets and the old side of the buildings, you're like, oh my god, it's so, yeah. it just feels like London. <laughs> yeah. 
right on the the UK at because my wife is from Cornwall. Oh, okay. And we've been cool. to the UK a few times at Christmas. It's magical. It feels amazing. You it's feel like you've gone back in time somehow. Yes. Like people go to the pub on Christmas Day. Mm-hmm. Like you open your presents. Yep. And then you like, she lives in a village where like 75 people live there year round. It's right on the beach. Yes. She actually lives like at 20 minutes from the uh, light tower of Fraggle Rock is. So we've gone there. Oh my god! Um, in like r- about twenty minutes from the um, uh, the hellhounds from the Omen, so I've climbed oh, like that structure. I that's mean, crazy. Like, me up there, but you go to the pub at like noon on Christmas, and everybody like toasts one another. Then you go and like have your Christmas dinner. It just hits different. It's and so it, amazing. It's the same kind of food they. I feel like they bring in other than the singing grapes, like a very British mm-hmm. kind of meal to yeah. it. So, like it. It's. it's you got to know where to go to get the singing grapes. Like yeah. you have to have a connection, I guess. Yeah. Just as long as I can keep off the moors, I'm going to be fine. <laughs> Lovely. Um, but I definitely love a UK Christmas. So I've not been to London yet. So God, I'm so jealous of you guys. I've never even been to the UK, let alone on Christmas. Sounds like you guys need to do like a movie tour there. You got. think so we need a lot more patrons. Mm-hmm. And they need we'll to work on in. that. We can do a field trip. Um, what come about on, the, patrons? Think, do your thing. Yeah, do your on, thing, people. folks. All right. Part of the reason this movie works so well is the the music. I think, mm-hmm. and I'm usually not a fan of musicals. Same. I think oh, I Paul Williams' work oh. here is just incredible. Impeccable. Yeah, like it's a great comeback for him. What are some of our favorites? Like, what are the tunes that really stand out? And I think Rachel, you've got one like right off the top. Oh yeah, I'm a Marley and Marley girl. Mm-hmm. It's so good. It's so dramatic. I've always liked a spooky villain song in the Disney movies. I'm like, I always mm-hmm. like the like kind of minor key bad songs. Um, and even as like a unexposed to horror little baby, like my heart loved something scary. And so mm-hmm. that I'm just like. Yes, but truly all of them. I listen to the soundtrack. Every single song and there's a banger. There's not one that I would get rid of as obvious by my passion for the love is gone. But I think, it, yeah, and I hate a musical. I never watch a musical. I'm just like, stop singing and dancing. But in oh, this, yeah. I love it. Same. I can't stand musicals. Yeah, I can't. Oh, you guys are killing the inner musical oh. theater geek in me. Um, oh. oh, no. It's part, probably being, it's probably the theater kid in me. I just, I love a good musical. I love all singing, all dancing. Yes, please. My favorite episode of Buffy is Once More with Feeling. Um, <laughs> it's I a great episode. I can't help myself. Like, I love a good musical. Um, my partner and I went and saw Book of Mormon when it was here in Chicago mm-hmm. last year, like in March. Like, it, I love a good musical. So I will say musical up. theater versus a musical movie are a different vibe. Because I do like yeah. to see live I feel like a live musical, there's that energy. A movie musical sometimes, other than Muppets, because I do like the Muppet ones. Um, yeah. It just doesn't translate to me when there's not the, like, stage. I mean, yeah. In the Heights was one of my favorite movies uh, okay. a couple years ago when that came out. Like, one of my favorite movies of the year. Like, I, I'm i a sucker for a good musical. West well, Side mm-hmm. Story. West Side Story is, I think, Spielberg's version is perfect. Like, 10 out of 10, no notes. Like, okay. I, I love I, a good musical. Always so I have. love me like Never Anna saw. and the Apocalypse. Like I do mm. love on I do love that movie. Like I can do the occasional musical, but in general, 
Uh, I think there's a reason why a lot of these films that are coming out that are musicals, like it's being hidden. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's a reason why, like, you're like, we're not really advertising that here in any of the trailers. No. Please still come see our movie. <laughs> I, yes. I want you to let me know. And the chances are good. I'm probably going to be there earlier if you tell me it's actually amazing. <laughs> okay. Um, to answer your question though, Mike, um, it feels like Christmas is my number mm-hmm. one little bullet. I, again, Jerry Jewell's ghost of Christmas present mm-hmm. is such a fucking delight. Maybe my favorite character in this movie. Um, and when the orchestra like swells going into the chorus and it is, I just, I tear up every time. Mm-hmm. Like I can't help it. It just, it makes me, it reminds me of like what Christmas was like when I was a kid, um, in musical, like distilled into song form. Uh, I'm starting to get a little misty just talking about it. Like mm-hmm. I, I love it so much. It's such a great number. And yeah. I, I'm a, I'm a sucker for a big showstopper. And that's, that's kind of this movie's version of a big showstopper. Oh yeah. Uh, like with the dancing in the streets and, and mm-hmm. it, like, it's, it's a showstopper and I really love that about it. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's gotta be, it feels like Christmas for me. Yeah. So I've got a pair here. I love, Scrooge. I love the one that opens mm. up after the overture. Mm-hmm. Miles Good, like Paul uh, Williams, like wrote the music for this, like the melodies and like the songs we sing. But Miles Goodman composed the score. He does the overture. Uh, but like Scrooge from Williams, I think is great. It opens it like it sets up the, what you're going to see so well. I love like the chorus for it. I'm a fan of the melody uh, and you can like make it dirty really easy. It's like, you know, there goes Mr. Asshole. There goes Mr. Bitch. It's just fucking great. You can <laughs> definitely do things like that, but it's just a, uh, it sets up the character so well. And it's a really fun song. I also, I love thankful heart. I love the Ooh. melody to that mm-hmm. song. Uh, like Kane is not a good, he's not a really a great singer. He's not a poor singer, but he just puts himself into the song. I love the, the ideas behind that song. Um, I think it's a really jaunty tune. I just love how it like plays out where everyone's following him. They're kind of like, what are all these shops that are open on Christmas? Um, one of them is called Statler and Waldorf. Oh, I missed that. I don't know I if you caught that one. Yeah. There's one called Statler that. and Waldorf. Um, but I think it like represents like the sentiment of this story in this movie and what this holiday is all about um, really well. And I think that the way, Kane sings it and like the heart that he puts into it is more important than any particular like having like a, a, a well trained voice and it's probably my favorite song in this whole movie I could listen to that on its own uh, I really love that song a lot yeah he really does go for it too mm-hmm. like he just he throws yeah. himself into it like like yeah I'm not a good singer but deal with it because Scrooge is inspired to, th- yeah. to sing mm-hmm. right now and it it, yeah. it it sells for sure and, but I agree with you Rich I don't think there's a bad song in this movie I really don't I want them all same and again Williams just um, Frank Oz talked about the music in this movie and he talked about why it really connects with people um and frank oz said it's his simplicity in his heart and purity that's where it comes from for jim it's the purity of intent the purity of character not being afraid of sweetness not pejorative sweetness but real actual valuable sweetness jim was that and paul is too they're able to be sweet without being saccharine. And I think mm. that's really important. Like 
is we mentioned Disney earlier, and I, I'm not a huge Disney person. I think a lot of times, like, their movies are a little too cutesy. And, like, you mentioned the Disney Christmas Carol. Like, I just never watch them because I just – they're just not for me. They wipe out a lot of the darkness of their stories in order to make it, like, palpable for children. They sugarcoat a lot, yeah. Yeah. This we'll talk about that in a moment. Like this story goes to a lot of dark places and it's mm. not afraid to show children dark things. It will hold your hand and it will guide you through them and it will make sure that it's not too scary. Like someone will be there to support you, but it's never saccharine. Jim hated being cute and hated being saccharine. That's Frank Oz. He hated faux sentimentality. What we got from Paul was exactly the reverse of that and exactly what Jim wanted. He and Jim somehow connected. They just did. I don't know how many times he worked with Paul, but every time it always felt like he was part of the family. And I think that like Paul Williams is very much like the one of the aces in the hole for the best Muppets work. I think that's why this movie is so good. Like, and I think yeah. part of why the Muppet movie is so good. Like you think of that movie and like, rainbow connection and moving light along. And can you picture that? Like, Williams just wrote like banger after banger. I was going to say that's another movie where there's not a bad song in that. Even the melancholy one, I'm going to go back there someday, like Mm -hmm. just rips your heart out. Like it's so melancholy Mm -hmm. and so beautiful. Like I I adore every song in that movie for sure. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the darkness of this movie. Let's. Let's do that. Mm -hmm. I feel like the, what do we feel is the, what scene do we feel is like the emotional linchpin of this movie? Mm. For me, it feels like it's the scene at the Cratchit household because it feels like it's the first scene where like Scrooge has started to defrost a bit after his encounter with the ghost of Christmas past, but he's reflecting on his own life and his own flaws, but things that have been done to him for me, it's when he sees the Cratchits and how they're living. And he's like, the feast is so small. It's the first time that he has to reflect on like how little other people have versus how much he has access to. And to me, it feels like the heart of like why this story works. I would say what not, are your thoughts? I would say not just that Mike, not just how little other people have, but how little other people have, by direct extension of his own action. Mm -hmm. Like he has a direct responsibility for how much Bob Cratchit makes. Um, And one of the things that I like about the entire section with the ghost of Christmas present is that Scrooge really gets a sense of how other people see him. Like for the first one, it's, it's all from his perspective. Like the ghost of Christmas past, it's all from his perspective, things that have happened to him, his dad dumping him at a boarding school, Um, you know, working through Christmas, getting dumped by uh, his girlfriend. Like that's all things that are, that's all from his perspective. But for the first time he gets to see how the other, how, how everyone else lives and how everyone else views him from his own family to his employees. Like he gets to see the, basically he gets to see born out in front of him what the Marley's warned him about early on. Like he gets to see, Oh, these things are happening. These people hate me these people have so little as a direct result of how I've been living my life and how I have been treating them. And so this is, this is what I have wrought upon this world. 
Um, and I think I, I know I, based on based on that, I think you've got a, a real point there. But he also s- connects in a very surprising way with Tiny Tim. Um, like yeah. he really connects with Tim Cratchit and really sort of emotionally bonds with that character in a way that we've not seen him connect with literally anyone else for the entire run of the movie or the entirety of the story. And I'm not sure what it is, whether it's Tim's attitude in spite of what's, what his physical condition is. If it's just because of the physical condition, the physical condition combined with the poverty, maybe his ability to keep a positive outlook through all of that. I'm not sure what it is, that draws Cratchit to, or draws Scrooge to him rather. But I feel like that is one of the stronger emotional connections in the film. And the fact that we care about this little child who gets maybe three and a half, five minutes of screen time in the whole film is, is really just remarkable storytelling, if nothing else. Mm -hmm. I think the fact that they choose to leave in the line where they bring back, uh, well, if he's going to die, then he should go ahead and do it and decrease the surplus population. I feel like that's such a heavy hitter in all of the Dickens movies, but mm-hmm. the the balance to it being the goofiest, muppetiest ghost that you love and he and Scrooge is connecting with to bring back that line is so like dark and impactful mm-hmm. um, that I think that's one of the grimmest. And then you brought it up in the notes, the scene where you see the little bunny shivering yeah. in his newspaper at the end, like that wrecks me. Yeah. Every time because you usually bad things happen to Muppets, but you know it's gonna be okay. And yeah. that's just such a bleak, real moment with them. And it, it is, it tears your heart apart. Which is one thing that I will say I do love about this movie is that most of the terrible things that you see happen to the Muppets come back around. He gets his yeah. good ending. So do the little mice. And I that's why I'm like, I feel like they show us horrible things and then they mm-hmm. give us a little glimmer of hope which yeah. is pretty much what the story's about. So, And that's what it's all about. And I, I agree with everything that was just said there. And I think that the fact that Scrooge for the first time sees what happens like this, and you see with the, the fast forward or the Christmas forward, it's Scrooge is less concerned about what happens to him in the future, but more like, well, what happened to tiny Tim? Mm-hmm. And when he sees that empty stool and you see like uh, Kermit and Miss Piggy or Bob and his wife and how sad everyone is because like Tim is no longer there. Like it's a really impactful moment. And I think that is like the moment that really changes things for Scrooge more and those than puppets emote the hell out of it yeah like i've never seen a grieving muppet like do that i'm like how does a tiny little pig rip my heart out but every like time Just they're like so that. it's so sad you're like oh my god i cry mm-hmm. every time there are i don't know if this is the right time to bring this up but there are, I, have, I stumbled on some outtakes from the movie today mm-hmm. and one of them is from that scene in the in the the christmas yet to come and uh, they're all kind of mourning the loss of Tiny Tim. And then one of the daughters, I don't remember which one, pops her head up and go, can I have his dinner? <laughs> <laughs> that worked. And I, I, oh. I lost it. I completely and lost my shit. It was so I'll funny. Because like, I've seen this enough where I crack jokes during sure. the Tiny Tim bits. And that's just also the way I'm built. You know, right. Uh, I am not always the most sensitive person, despite 
working as a therapist um where like when tiny tim is like hacking up a lung at the dinner table i'm like well i guess those chestnuts are yours now (laughs) thanks a lot for coughing all over the christmas dinner oh great i just diphtheria just the season i needed you know when like they all sit around the table and like and he starts singing it's like would you shut the fuck up we want to eat you know like stop bursting into song it's dinner time you know bet you wouldn't have bad lungs if you'd stop singing for a minute yeah right you know time for turkey but i i feel like that is like the real linchpin here and it's like when scrooge really starts to melt and you're right like that the bunny scene is the other one that gets me like when he's just shivering away in cold more than you know here's my other thing is scrooge's angst around christmas somewhat justified i feel like he's having a trauma response that's centered around christmas when you look at his backstory as a whole Mm -hmm. his father like dumped him at a boarding school and just left him there for years and he was forced to suffer these countless holidays alone and one of the things that this movie leaves out is his sister coming to the school and saying dad's had a change of heart you can now come home right that's left out here. He just like, all right, now you've been apprenticed off to like Fozziewig. Hmm. So he never goes home. His one love, the one woman he's ever been in love with, leaves him on Christmas Eve. She's like, uh, this isn't working anymore. All you do is work, which is a reasonable reason to leave someone. But I can also see his point of view. He's like, I'm trying to build a life for us. You know, we don't have a lot yet. I want to secure our future. But he's gone too far in that direction. He's so hated that people burst into song about how much they hate him. Right. He's just on his way to work. Like, that's a level of hatred that I can only aspire to. <laughs> like, if kids... <laughs> If I remember correctly, like Marley dies on Christmas in the novella. Uh, and that's like the closest thing that he has to a friend. Right. Um, so, and also if I remember correctly, the reason why Scrooge is cold to his nephew Fred is, and this is not in this movie at all, is his sister died giving birth to Fred. Right. And he loved his sister very much. So all of this like it kind of explains why Scrooge is the way he is like he's a man who's in tremendous pain at a time when there's really not a thing called therapy or Prozac or anything that might help this man out. And I think in a lot of ways, that's the reality for a lot of people around the holidays Mm -hmm. too. Like not everyone associates the holidays with good memories. Um, You know, sometimes really shitty things happen very close to this apparently very joyous time of the year. And there's nothing that feels more lonely than being the only person that doesn't seem to be quote getting into the spirit. Um, so like he is, he's isolated himself. And I think his attitude toward Christmas, I, while justified does not justify his treatment of everyone else around him. And I think mm-hmm. that's really what it comes down to. Like, is his attitude toward Christmas justified? Absolutely. That is a man who has had some terrible shit happen to him, but by the same token, that doesn't mean that you get to treat everyone that you come across like a piece of garbage. Like you need to, you need to find, find that balance. Yeah. Which by the end of the movie, mercifully he does, but yeah. 
And I think even if you haven't had terrible things happen to you at Christmas, which a lot of people have, and it's not a happy time for them, we have this idea that it has to be fun. There's so much mm -hmm. pressure that Christmas has to be everything that in turn, I think a lot of us end up feeling like, fuck this whole holiday. Like I, if I have to drive by the mall one more time, I'm going to lose my shit. And yeah. like, so I think there is that aspect that we all kind of see where Scrooge is from, not the rich part of it by any means, but the, what the hell are we doing on this holiday? And I'm like, so we relate to him in that way. Yeah. yeah. It's why I like Thanksgiving more than Christmas. It's because you get a lot of the good parts of Christmas without a lot of the craziness. Like, it's just really like, I'm going to cook a really big meal. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get together with friends and family. We're going to eat a really big meal. And then we're going to unbuckle our pants and watch movies or football. Yes. And I'm not going to worry about presents. I'm not going to worry about going shopping. I'm not going to worry about all the material things. We're just going to eat a giant ass turkey and I'm going to cram as many mashed potatoes down my gullet as I possibly can to the point where it's dangerous. In accordance with scripture. Yes. All the trappings. I and love Thanksgiving. Christmas is hard. Christmas is hard. And Christmas isn't a day. Thanksgiving is just one day, mm -hmm. albeit like there is some input and, you know, some genocide. But Christmas is a month and a half. Yep. of non-stop and so you don't have a chance to be a scrooge because you have to go to every dinner you have to go to every sing-along you have to go to every event with a smile on your face and a 25 dollars gift card and yeah. like who doesn't feel scroogey after that mm -hmm. yeah absolutely like um one thing though that i always think is weird is how much as a society we vilify scrooge and we mm -hmm. hate him and he's this terrible person we all get it when we watch this but then we can't just stop loving a billionaire I'm like, mm -hmm. we can't draw mm -hmm. the comparison. That's what, it always drives me crazy. People are like, don't be a Scrooge. I'm like, you're, I think you're missing the point. Maybe once again, watch the 92 Muppet Christmas Carol classic and see if you can pick up some mm -hmm. pointers on how it applies to our real world. <laughs> well, I mean, we as a society are completely media literate at this point, and we do not understand irony, subtlety, or nuance. So that's so fun, isn't it? <laughs> so I completely agree. And one of the things that I, find fascinating and one of the things that keeps me up at night if this move if this story was published now in 2023 in the year of our lord if there would be any resonance with modern audiences because i feel like what would happen because this is a really explicit critique of unchecked free market capitalism it's absolutely you, like, this is bad like what we are doing is bad the way we are working people to the bone and underpaying them this is not good and it's unsustainable and we should not doing we should be paying people a fair wage we should be giving people time off ample time off we should be less concerned with working and more concerned with spending time with friends and family and loved ones um there's a line in thankful heart where it's like the true measure of a man's heart is how many friends that he has at the end don't measure a person by how much money he has. It's by the measure of his friends. And mm -hmm. I really believe that. I look at like, at the end of the day, like that's how you measure a person. Like who do you, who looks up to you? Who are the people you call friends? And and I've been very fortunate to say that like, I, I look at the people I've surrounded myself with and I'm like, I, I got really melancholy at one point. I was talking with my sister at some, we were at some like punk show. 
it was a punk flea market and her husband was playing for the first time in forever because he's a phenomenal musician and he got to like get together with friends and play in a band again and we're there and we brought our kids who are like 13 and hers are like six and four and we're in our 40s and the kids running it are in their 20s and it's a much different scene and, and I'm like it's in a good place. And I'm like, we've had a good run. Like what a great fucking life we've had. I'm like, if it ended tomorrow, we had a good run. She's like, what the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) Shut up. So sorry. Um, got a little, little, little deep there. Um, if this story came out today, I feel like Fox News would whip its viewers into a frenzy and be like, this is too woke. Like, this is communist propaganda. And we talked about this last year when we did It's a Wonderful Life. Like, right. Frank Capra and Jimmy Stewart were put on an FBI watch list oh. after It's a Wonderful Life came out. Because, like, this is, like, commie speak right mm-hmm. here. What are they doing? And I feel like that would happen with It's a Christmas Carol. Totally. It's, the CEO of Wayfair came out this week and said to his employees, like a le- an email surface that said, you people should be, your our employees should be thinking about tying their work into their home life more. That it's not a nine to five gig. You should be thinking about work more when you're off the clock. And it's nope. such a fucked up way yeah. to think nope, about nope, life. Nope. No. Yeah, I hate everything about that. I mean, yeah. I, I, I'm, you, you say that, Mike, and, and this story has been so prevalent for so long and yet people miss it but these are also the people that are getting online and saying like oh when did when did star wars and star trek become political mm-hmm. like they've yeah. they've always been political like what are you what are you talking like this the a christmas carol has always been political this is not anything new you've just been completely missing the point for the last x amount of years like that's that's on you buddy like yeah. you, for almost 200 years, you've been missing the point of, of Charles Dickens as a Christmas carol. That Don't put that on me. That's on you. And thank you for posting your L's so loudly. But again, like I, I feel like when I, when I read shit like that, I'm just like, is media literacy really dead? And I, I have to believe on some level, kind of, because, yeah. you know, the, the, the whole notion that the whole point of this thing is, yeah, capitalism, bad, um, pay people fairly, um, do not wait for one time of the year to be nice and kind to people like food banks go nuts around Christmas time and then spend the rest of the year begging everyone for donations because the only time mm-hmm. people want to be charitable or generous is around the holidays. Mm-hmm. And so like, it's, it, it, it's that, that great kind of unchecked, I guess, um, metric like that, 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 that thing that we just don't think about very often is the fact that, yeah, this is, this is always a problem and mm-hmm. we've allowed it to get to this point. And what are we going to do about it? Well, we're going to complain about it online. That's what we're going to do. Always. It's the most effective way to get anything done. Right. About it. Yeah. I mean, we're, I'm looking at states in 2023 that rolled back child labor laws, like literally passed legislation to mm-hmm. roll back saying it's okay for 14 year olds to work more hours after school mm-hmm. and their rationale was like well families have it tough right now so the solution is to not make it so that persons have to earn a more fair wage it's not to improve working conditions it's not to support labor unions it is like let's make it so the persons that are most vulnerable who have the least amount of skin in the game 
game who can't really affect any change at all because they're too young to vote you too young to really take any part in a system that can affect change let's make it so they can work more hours um and work harder jobs like that is what we want to go back to and that is to me a very it's a very scary thing and i feel like in an individual level people are inherently good like as individuals people are good i really do believe that in my heart and i've said that elsewhere so that when we talked about godzilla on the patron page politics aside when you put politics into it it's when we become our worst selves one side more than the other but there are bad faith actors on both sides at one side much worse than the other Individually, I think people want to do good, but we just introduce a lot of mucky muck into it and people get tied into like a certain set of core economic beliefs that like, especially here, we think that if I just work really, really hard, I can become a millionaire or a billionaire too one day. It's like, no, man, if you work really, really hard, you're going to make your boss a lot of money. Correct. And you're just going to work yourself to the grave earlier. Yep. So I don't know. That's my thought. But as long as the billionaires can keep buying off politicians, nothing's ever going to change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Do we want to end on that note? Yay! Positivity. <laughs> so, well, two things I want to say real quick, Mike. One, yeah. to stave off all the people that are going to tweet at me, um, you do have to go into the extras on Disney Plus to get the full version, but it is there. Okay. I, had I but known that, I did not know, but it is I know there. I didn't know that either. Well, now we know. Now everyone knows. Uh, and second of all, the bunny the bunny has a name, and his name is Bean Bunny, and he is adorable. And he I love adorable. him. And he is voiced by Steve Whitmire. He was a late, late 80s creation of Steve Whitmire's. And um, he kind of got phased out, I think, shortly after this movie. I think people yeah. found him a little too cloying. But, um, yeah, he's a great character. Yeah. The Thought best. Michael Caine, you know what would go great with that turkey? Rabbit. And then he just chases down. <laughs> Sharpens his knife. Poor Miss Piggy has to cook for all of those people that Scrooge mm -hmm. invites. That is my thought every time. I'm like, the entire town just hop, skipped, and jumped their way to your table with a raw-ass mm -hmm. turkey. Like, but, four hours before the meal, you're like, yeah, hey, yeah. I'm really nice now. Now cook for me and everyone yeah. who lives here. I'm like, real Miss Piggy would have had a yeah. meltdown. Correct. Like Ebenezer, you better be rolling up those sleeves and like yeah. cutting some potatoes and, and roasting some carrots turkey. too. Get a rotisserie yeah. chicken. I don't know what they yeah. had back then, but don't you be bringing a bird that is raw to my house two hours before. Absolutely. At least it's already been thawed. So a lot of the, like the, the, the prep work has already been done. Yeah. It's, you know, mm -hmm. it's just the seasoning and the roasting. Yeah. that, that yeah. Needs to be It comes done. out also, nice at the end. That's a nice brown turkey. Yeah. It is. I that is. Love a turkey. It, it it's probably like it's 15 minutes per pound of turkey okay. and that's probably like a 30 pound bird so you're looking at like six to seven hours of cooking so you have about 50 strangers like sitting in their little hovel mm -hmm. what are they about. doing oh no they're spilling out into the street yeah what are they doing oh, yeah. for those seven hours like right. what are the they're, they're clearly singing songs to each yeah. other mm -hmm. I a mean this is on repeat this is a musical, Mike. Right. Yeah. I don't even want to know the key party going on at Fred's house, like with oh. those two ugly Muppets. Like, <laughs> it's like, all right, charades is over. Close off. Let's go. <laughs> Let's Just... do it. Keys in the bowl. Let's do this. Yeah. Oh, also, God. I think there are like 
as far as Muppet movie goes, is Mike, Michael Caine's really the only important human? He is. I mean, granted, his he's got his girlfriend and then his nephew and her his mm. wife. But I feel like those are the only humans that have any impact yeah. in this story. Those are the prominent ones, yeah. Which yeah. is and a very, like, very whoa, different. Low <laughs> number of humans for a Muppet movie, which yeah. I kind of... I don't know. I think it adds to it. I really like that. I'm like, that's agree. become. I mean, that's that's where the the meme comes from. The okay, take a take a movie, and mm-hmm. one actor is in it, and then everyone else is played by Muppets. Like that's that's where this is essentially the thing that starts that hmm. that whole meme because um, that's kind of what they do in um, Muppet Treasure Island as well. I mean, mm-hmm. you've got uh, Jennifer Saunders at the beginning and Billy Connolly. And then Tim Curry, but like that's it. Like there are like it. there are a couple of other people as like among the pirates, but that's it. Um, and so that becomes then until Muppets from Space, and then you get like all the cameos in that movie. Mm-hmm. Like everybody's in that movie, which is yeah. I think harkens back more to the Muppet movie, Muppet yeah. Caper, Great or Take Manhattan kind of run yes. of the original trilogy. Like that, in a lot of ways, harkens back to that one. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. It's magic. The blend of just a Muppet and a human dancing together in the background of a scene. You're just like, what? It's yeah. perfect. It's great. We love it. We love to we see it. We love it. Love yeah. it. Absolutely love it. So, I think that's it. I think we've covered a Muppet Christmas Carol. Yeah. Um, if you have a chance to check it out, it is on Disney Plus. It is on Hulu. I think the ver- I have like Hulu with commercials, but it was running commercial free on mine, which nice. was great. And I actually bought it on Fork. It was like eight bucks to buy on 4k on apple so i purchased it on 4k so i would nice. do that as well i watched it in my because i watched it at school yesterday in my office i'm like no kids need counseling today so i am watching this last day before break who needs counseling yeah i would go in because it was pajama day and i would go to the middle <laughs> schooler so i'm like i thought it was pajama day they're like it is i'm like you're wearing the same clothes you wear every day and they would get so mad like no we're not and i'm like no you literally are wearing the same clothes <laughs> also you have a math test you know that right like, what <laughs> i'm like yeah like you know the teacher's oh, giving good. you a math test and then i would leave it was awesome um <laughs> I personally still watch it on my VHS copy mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. 1992. So I get nice. the previews and I feel oh, great. That's great. Love it. It's fantastic. And it has the song. Yeah. Excellent. So on that note, let's do some plugs. Everybody's favorite part of the show. I Yay. hear that people skip ahead to the very end just to hear the plugs. Yeah. I mean, if you do that, go back and listen to the whole podcast as well, please. Or don't. Whatever you want. Hey, you know what? You can do whatever you want. It's totally fine. Just give them your money um, and listen to whatever yeah, you just, want. Yeah. So, Rachel, where can listeners find Tell us a little bit about your artwork and your photography. Where can folks find it and what's it all about? Yeah, so I do, like we said before, a lot of like nude photography. I'm very body positive. And just in the way that like, I think feel like when you say body positive, people are like, love your body. I'm like, yes, love your body. But also like, let's recognize all the beautiful, flawed, fucked up things that our bodies do and capture them and feel good in that. So I love that people feel good after getting photos of themselves from me. Like it's a awesome, enlightening, wonderful, sexy experience. I think that's super fun. So you can see all of my artwork. I have a Patreon um, myself. Unfortunately, as is the way of censorship, you can't find me on Patreon. You have to Google my name plus the word Patreon, because if you create what they deem adult content, you can't be searched for on the site. 
Um, so my name is Rachel Schwebach, S-C-H-W-E-B-A-C-H. If you search for that in Patreon, it'll all come up. And I've been putting work on there for about seven years now. Photos, videos, all sorts of work like that. Send me that and I will make sure that goes in the show notes. I so will. people can click it right from yeah. And I'm on Twitter under Indie Smut Peddler because um, from Indianapolis, I'm actually, I did a really great black Christmas shoot that is coming out tomorrow because I have a creepy whole attic right above me. So we got to use that. Um, oh, wonderful. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. You can find me on the internet. Again, very hard to find. So you got to just kind of Google my name and I'll show up. Um, and if you're local, if you're in Indianapolis, I hang out and perform at the White Rabbit Cabaret, an amazing cabaret it's a here. Great in venue. That is a great it's, venue. It is the best place. The people who work there are amazing. They're and in fact, you said people don't talk about Muppets. We talk about Muppets all the time. Like I hang out yeah, with a group yes. of Muppet positive clowns and other wild freaks who we love the Muppets. So come talk Muppets with us if you're ever in Indianapolis. Hell yeah! Excellent. Excellent. Stephen, what is going on with Disenfranchised? A new month coming up. What is, you just did the three black Christmases for December. Right. What is going on with January? Uh, well, we're going to finish out the year as we always do with the a failed franchise starter from the year we just finished. So we're doing 2023's The Flash next week. Uh, and then we're going to take a bye week, bye week, bye week, bye week. And then we're going to do, uh, we're actually got another theme month coming up. Uh, we're going to do uh, a Stephen King failed franchise starters. Yes. Uh, I'm calling it the drawing of three because uh, we're covering, because we're taking a bye week. So we got three weeks left in January. So we're doing three Stephen King movies. I think we're doing, um, we're doing night flyer. We're doing Christine and we're going to do uh, the remake of Carrie. It's the uh, 2013 no, remake of Carrie. No dark tower. Is we've, failed. we've done dark tower. Oh, okay. Um, we've done dark tower. That was, we had, um, Mandy and Molly Gossage, a couple of, uh, really great, um, uh, longtime Stephen King fans that I've known forever, uh, mm -hmm. came on to do that one when Firestarter came out, we did that mm -hmm. one. So we've done that one, but yeah. Uh, and I think I'm coming back on for Valentine's Day as yes. is tradition, right? Yes. Of what course. are we doing for this year? We're doing a movie called Valentine. We are doing a movie called Valentine. It is a uh, it amazing is the, movie. It's not the slasher. We we did that one last year. The slasher Valentine we did last year. This one is uh, I think it's a Hindu. Uh, not it's like a it, it's definitely a foreign. Uh, it's it's based on a foreign comic book superhero called Valentine. Uh, oh. and I, I, I can't find these comics anywhere. I have been looking. I don't know where they are. Uh, but it's like it, the movie itself is on Amazon Prime and it's called Valentine. I think it came out in like 2017. But yeah, I gave Mike like a list of movies and he's like that one. And I was like, all right, here we go. So yeah, we're going to Mike's going to come on for our our annual Valentine's episode as he has done. Every this will be the fourth year in a row you've come yep. on for our Valentine's episode. Then, so what the two my bloody Valentines? Yep, Valentine with David Boreanaz, mm -hmm. and then the one time and, you didn't come on for Valentine's was when we talked about the Friday the Thirteenth remake. Yeah, so this oh, will be your oh. this will be your fifth time on the main feed. So excellent. I gotta I gotta get your jacket mailed out to you. Oh, that would <laughs> be fantastic. All right, listen, and where can they find you, Steve? Uh, Disenfranchised. We're on uh, most forms of social media at Pod, including Patreon. Uh, and then you can find me at Chewy Walrus, um, pretty much most forms of social media. I'm not on Twitter as much anymore, but yeah, come find me. All right, listeners, you know the spiel. I'll try to be quick. Uh, <laughs> I'll try to be fast today. But 
as always, like the easiest way you can support our show, a uh, quick and easy thing you can do is if you go to Apple Podcasts, make sure that you rate us five stars. Leave us a couple lines in a review. Uh, like just why you love the show and then subscribe to us. Like we've been stuck at about 120 reviews for a few weeks now. So if a few of you new listeners, which we know there are some new ones, leave us those five stars and a few sentences. Like that would be a fantastic Christmas gift. Uh, and subscribe to us. So you make sure you don't miss an episode. If you listen to us on, on Spotify, hit that five star review button. That's super easy way to support the show. And it helps new listeners find us every day. An even better way to support the show is become a patron of the show. Go to Pod in the Pendulum. Go to patreon.com slash pod in the pendulum. Become a patron today. We just posted our talk on Godzilla minus one uh, for our patrons. That was Brian, myself, and Michelle Egan of the Movies for Life pod, like Brian's co-host, had a really fun discussion on that. We have new episodes up every month along with uh, other cool stuff. That goes a long way to like letting us, you know, continue the show, not only picking up the movies, but also books, documentaries, and other supporting material. Um, on the socials, we're on Twitter at Pod and Pendulum. We're on Blueski as well, and we're going to do some other socials next year. What's coming up next week, January 1st? That will be our best of 2023 episode. And then our first franchise of 2024, all the Universal Frankenstein movies, all eight of them, starting with Frankenstein. Uh, can't wait. I actually already have my notes almost done for it. The goal is to maybe record it early because I'm on Christmas break. It's the first day of Christmas vacation for us. Maybe get a little ahead of the game. Brian and I have already planned out some stuff. Super excited. Can't wait to cover all eight of these things. Listeners, thank you so much. Uh, we hope you're, if you're, hope you're enjoying the holiday wherever you are. Thanks for supporting the show. Thanks for listening. It's been a phenomenal year. Thanks to all my co-hosts. Um, there's seven of you, so I'm not going to go through all the names right now because I feel like I'll forget one. Uh, Rachel, thanks for jumping on, and please come back. I'd love to. Thanks for having me. This was great. This has been awesome, and happy holidays, everyone. Take care.